Hi everybody, welcome to Stratus Free Lounge. I'm your host, Bill Whittle, and uh, it's good to be here. It's uh, record date is uh, May 19th, uh, 2022. I really thought, as I'm sure many of you my age did, uh, that when uh, when I'd be coming in for the Stratus Free Lounge in 2022, I wouldn't be coming up from the parking lot. I'd be coming down from the roof. I would just take my uh, jetpack in. You know, I used to think everybody would have a jetpack, and now I think, you know, I'd like to have a jetpack. It'd be kind of cool. But it better have 100% reliability because there's not a whole lot of failure modes in a jetpack. Yes, I did record. And also, uh, I imagine that flying in a jetpack is probably not, is, is great in Southern California, but I imagine in, you know, like Minnesota in the winter, it's probably not so much fun. Uh, speaking of jetpacks, uh, I saw a video of, um, I don't know, I think it was Britain. Uh, there's a guy who's got a, he's got a, a jetpack. And unlike the rocket-powered jetpack, this has got enough fuel it's using turbines. So he's got a major jetpack on his back, and he's got two little jets on his hands. He's kind of steering with his hands like this. And they were using it to show how fast this guy could go up a, well, in Britain they call it a mountain. British mountains like an American, you know, anthill, but that's the way things are. But just for rec rescue purposes, as, um, as a... Uh, as a way of getting up this hill. And I think on foot it took something like, you know, 35 minutes because you can't get a, a truck up there. And this guy did it in two and a half. And he just goes, he just goes flying up the hill. Shh, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, and the, and the Brits, uh, 5708 Rivera says, uh, the, the, there's also footage of Brits taking off from one and going to another. Uh, in any event, uh, that's that. Um, before we hit the record button, for those of you uh, who uh, uncouth enough to not be here for the live show, um, we uh, rolled a, uh, the latest version of the animation out, and um, and I, I, it's really coming together. I, I have to have this damn stuff out next week. I just have to, have to. It's going out one way or another. Because, um, uh, as I was saying uh, to the uh, live gang here who, who took a look at it, um, this has uh, this has got to work. <laughs> We're really betting the farm on this, but. I think it's a compelling argument. In any event, uh, I can see the end from, from where we are. I'm on the final scene. I got everything all synced up. I'm just grabbing footage now. And then from there, uh, we'll get the thing out the door. But it's, I'll tell you what, uh, I showed it a couple episodes ago. And since then, I've been able to add a significant amount. And mostly, I've been able to do um, the music edits. And, and there are a couple of cuts in this uh, in this thing where I practically cried watching it because I put so much effort into this. You finally get to see it and it's like, I think this cut will work. Boom! And it's like, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. That looks like a movie. Um, or if I mentioned this on one of the shows or something, there's a, oh, I think I might have mentioned it. Maybe I mentioned it last week. There's a editing technique called backing, backing a shot in. So for impact, you want that picture to cut right on the sound, right? Just really, whoop, boom, like that. Uh, just for those of you who are curious about those kind of things, the way you do that on a uh, nonlinear editing system like uh, Premiere Pro or, you know, Avid I used to work on and so on, is um, you lay down the soundtrack and then you, you, you look for the music peak, whoop, right there, that frame. And then you take, you take the picture right where you want it and put it on there and then you just roll the back of it in 
it doesn't matter where it starts. What matters is, does that cut happen on the on the beat? When you do that, man, it's absolutely fantastic. I don't know if that is called a smash cut or not, uh, Tiki Rocket. I'll be honest with you. I've heard the term, but I just, it's just, it's very, very, very effective when it works because then there's like, there's another one of these whoop, and then ting cuts to black and all of a sudden the music gets very ethereal, very elfish, you know, Lord of the Rings kind of thing. And I'm very happy with it. Anyway, um, we will keep moving on because uh, we're getting pretty close to this to this thing. We got some great comments. Scott Ott was uh, extremely generous and, and uh, put a lot of work into um, kind of synthesizing the comments from uh, a couple weeks ago. And... Um, yeah, so they're snap. Yeah, they are smash cuts. Marusha was kind of to say a smash cut is a technique in film and other moving picture media where one scene abruptly cuts to another for aesthetic, narrative, or emotional purposes. Yes, yeah, so smash cuts. There's two of them at least. And the music is really working. And um, and I, I I I'm just you know, it looks like a movie. It took me six or seven months to do version one, which is two seconds under six minutes long. 558. So that took me six months. This new stuff, the, the, the whole first part is, um, uh, I want to say it's, I don't know. The finished product's going to be 14 minutes long. So I did eight, nine minutes of new stuff in six weeks instead of six months. So we're moving much, much, much faster. Um, Bart wants to know if you can get an order of smash cuts with gravy. Absolutely, I will serve those right up. And you know what? I'm going to put the plate down right on the beat. Um, and uh, GK Masters said, uh, if you ever do a film, a filmmaking masterclass, Bill, I'd sign up. Thank you, GK. I've been thinking an awful lot about uh, what I want to do with this second channel, which I will open as soon as I get this thing out the door. And uh, I think I want to concentrate on, um, on filmmaking, movie making. There are guys who are doing great reviews of, of films and stuff. Dooncock, obviously, Critical Drinker. And, and I found a new guy. I've forgotten his name now, but he's... he's and, um... Well, anyway, a bunch of them. And I, I don't... I don't want to try to compete with those guys because their, criti their critiques are fantastic. But no one is... Um, no one is talking about how to do things the right way. Uh, I mean, occasionally a uh, critical drinker will say uh, critical drinker fixes this or fixes that. And he does a real good job because he's a fine writer. Um, but I think, I really think that the, the, this second channel is going to be completely dedicated to, um, to, making, to making movies and essentially making movies in Unreal 5. And Unreal 5 is, is just an order of magnitude better than before. It's just, it's astonishing. Um, and, and so it's not just going to be the technical stuff on how do, you, how do you make movies in Unreal. It's also going to be what makes good writing. Um, you know, what makes good writing. Uh, and the nice thing about this little puppet show is animation. Because that's what I always look at it as. It's like a little puppet show. And a couple years ago, the, the quality was good enough for me to think, okay, I don't want to do stylized stuff and I don't want to do you know computer animation stuff I want it to look real and it gets more real every day but in addition to being able to actually show how here's how you I'll give you a quick example um, virtually everything in in this animation that, that I'm just wrapping up now is uh, stock animation and I've got I don't know 30 of them 
from uh, Unreal Marketplace. So some of them will be, you know, sword and, and shield fighting, and some of them will be two axes fighting, and some of them will be guys walking, and some of them is interaction and so on. And you have to put these things together. But just to give you an example, if you want a character to walk across the floor in uh, in Unreal or in other, any other 3D thing, you got basically two ways to do it. Um, the easy way in most situations is to use something called root motion, where the animation will show the character walking, and as the character's legs are moving, the actual center, the root of the character, is moving along the floor as well, so it's perfect. Um, the, the steps perfectly match, perfectly. And if you speed the animation up, he'll walk faster and he'll move faster. So that's great, but that's a bitch when it comes to doing things like walking down hills or, or going around trees really hard. Um, the other kind is called in place, where the character's doing a walk cycle and he's just in place. You can make that work by starting him over here and pick a number of frames, let's say 300 frames, moving him over there. And so even though the motion is not tied into the animation, it looks good. But since they're not locked together, if you don't do this exactly right, you're going to get two different things. You're either going to get slipping or you're going to get skiing. Slipping is where the feet are moving faster than the characters moving across the floor. Skiing is where the feet are moving more slowly than when the character is moving across the floor. If your character is slipping, that means he's not working far enough. Go back to your opening endpoint and physically move it away in space. If he's skating, on the other hand, he's, he's moving too fast, so you've got to move it in the other direction. Um, these are the kind of things that are useful. But mostly I want to talk about writing and script writing and stuff. I would love to start, I think, on... Um, I think if I were to start tomorrow, I would start with uh, Crimson Tide. I would start with making jargon work. But I'm going to do things like, you know, I mean, I've given some fair thought to what the tutorials would look like for the Unreal stuff, and the first one is keyframes. You can't understand anything unless you know how keyframes work. Um, so I'll just go back and forth between the, between the, here's how you do it in Unreal, and then, okay, so now you know how to get a guy to walk across the floor. Now what are you going to do with him? Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be fun. Um, I also want to do, a, I, I do want to do, not like individual reviews, but I do want to do things like, you know, how you, how you killed, uh, how do you kill Star Trek? How do you kill Star Wars? I don't know Film Courage, uh, Marisha, sounds like it might be good. How, how do you kill them, you know? Um, and they're dead and gone. Uh, what, I, I'm very, 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 very interested in, in the, in, it's not, and there's a political cause behind this and there's a money cause behind this, but basically, the last three Star Wars movies are just a remake of the first three. I mean, they're just a one-for-one one remake, you know? And and then now we've got the Strange New Worlds thing, which is essentially a one-to-one -one remake of the original series. And they're not adding anything new. The three J.J. Um, Abrams Star Trek movies, the Kirk and Spock and McCoy and everything, how about coming up with something new? Hollywood is just going over and over and over and over and over the stuff that worked. And, that, and, and in the case of track it worked what uh, 55 years ago something like that 
And every time they try to do it again, it gets worse and worse and worse. They don't have the talent to do anything new. They certainly don't have the science background. They don't have the writing background. And that's why they just keep doing this kind of, you know, um, uh, stolen valor. We're going to call this new guy Captain Kirk because everybody likes Captain Kirk. You like Captain Kirk because Captain Kirk, over what is it, 72, 78 episodes of the original series, was a character. And, and everybody got to like him. Um, so um, if Abrams, somebody, uh, Rivera says, uh, fourth Star Trek's in the works with Abrams. If it's Abrams, it's going to fail. And Abrams and people like Abrams are the problem. Um, uh, what's the name of the showrunner on these new Trek things? Uh, it's, um, is it, it's not Schwartzman, is it something like that? They, they're the problem. J.J. Abrams is not a great filmmaker. J.J. Abrams is a great visual uh, artist, but he's, but he's not a filmmaker. I'll give you just two examples, right? Just, just for fun. Um, I saw the first, I didn't see the first episode of Strange New Worlds. I, I fast forwarded through it. It's on YouTube. Kurtzman and, and Goldsman, yeah, they're both horrid. And, and when you see them interviewed, these guys are like, these are like these gamma males sitting around, you know, in between sips of the soy, talking about James T. Kirk and, and, and the adventures of the Starship Enterprise. It's like, you guys don't have the faintest idea. This was something I was thinking about. So Kurtzman and, and Goldsman are, are, are these two kind of, you know, they look like, they look like graphic designers. Uh, and yeah, soy trick, exactly. They look like graphic designers and they don't have the faintest idea what this is about at all. It, compare that with Gene Roddenberry who, who was the winner of the Distinguished uh, Flying Cross. And my understanding was that he was also a, a police officer or at least hung out with a policeman. This guy knew what this stuff was about. He was an actual male. It was an actual male who'd been in combat and who'd been out on the streets and he, and he knew what he knew what made it work. The reason that this new stuff is so appalling is because it's so gay, you know? It's just so gay. I don't mean that in a perjurative way. I've got nothing against gay people. I have a lot of gay friends, and, and I don't care what you do at home. It's none of my business. But honestly, that's what the problem is. It's just gay. It, the, the, you look at Star Trek Discovery, and you look at those uniforms, and, and you think, this is what? This is what Star Trek uniforms would look like if, you know, if God was gay. This is what this is what they would look like. And all of it is is like that. It's just it's just so soy. It doesn't know anything about what makes this stuff work. And since I'm already probably got myself banned here in another strike on the channel, I might as well go for it while we're at it. Uh, <laughs> gay, not gay. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, the reason, mostly, that these that these female heroes, these female action heroes, don't work, I've thought about this, and it finally just came to the realization. The reason that they don't work is because there aren't any. That's why it doesn't work. Because there aren't any. There aren't any. There aren't any females that go out there, and uh, and kick down doors and and, and beat people up. They, they don't exist. And, and people know it. They, these, these leftists want them to exist, so they 
make these movies is kind of this wish fulfillment where these uh, five foot two women go out and beat the hell out of these big guys. But that's just their wishful, wishful thinking. There aren't any. Now, now we get to the good stuff. You can write, and, ha and people have written, um, excellent female action characters, but what, what do Ripley and Sarah Connor, who are both fantastic characters and who I was with all the way, what do those two female characters written by men, what do they have in common? What is it about them that makes it work? in the case of, of Ripley and Sarah Connor. What is it? Why do those two characters work? And Captain Marvel and, and, and Black Widow, and all the people just, no, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Uh, Marion Ravenwood, that's a great, it's a great thing, D of 88 from the first, um, from, the, from Raiders of the Lost Ark. What makes those two work? In my opinion, there are two things that make Ripley and Sarah Connor one of them is they're scared. Merlin and I, got, Merlin got that up right at the exact instant. They're scared. But the main reason I believe them is because they are fighting for their children. And that is where you will find women do unbelievably heroic things. It's a, it's a cliche because it's true, you know? It's men's job to go and run towards the fight, and and it's and, and women are supposed to run away. That's how it's supposed to work. That's that's what evolution wants, and it's what uh, morality wants. But if it turns out that there's no one there to protect their kids, women will do unbelievable things. They have unbelievable courage. It just just happens. It just comes out of nowhere. And Sarah Connor, just a waitress who's scared out of her minds, but this thing is coming to kill her boy. And and Ripley is scared out of her wits on uh, on the first Alien movie. She just wants to get off the ship, and she, she's the last one, so she has, she has to do this. She goes back for the cat. A lot of people say, don't forget the cat. She goes back for the cat, but in the second one, in Aliens, um, Newt is her daughter. If, you've, if you haven't seen the director's cut of Aliens, there is so much there that explains so much that they cut out of the movie, but in... In, uh, in Aliens, when Ripley wakes up, she's been gone for, I don't know, 58 years or something, and what about my daughter who I left 58 years ago? Yeah, she died a few years ago. Oh, well, that kind of sucks. Um, so, Newt becomes her daughter, and when, and when Newt is left there, taken, you know, goes down into the water, and Newt's down in the, in the basement of the atmosphere processor, and there's no one to go get her, then it's, Ripley says, look, it's either me or nobody. I would rather send Hicks, but Hicks isn't available. And that's why those characters work. That's why they work. And the, the, these writers, these modern writers, most all of them are big left-wingers, but nevertheless, they don't understand, the well, maybe they do understand the dynamic. They're determined to change it. They, they want women to be ass-kickers. They're not, and and even even the people they're trying to sell it to know that they're not, um, because you know if you if you decide that you, that you're the only time you're going to get a woman who's going to go into you know a shark tank is to go rescue their their son or daughter, well that would mean that women are biologically programmed to 
take care of their kids and watch their kids. Now, I'm not a biologist, but when it works, it works, and people know it. And as, as Mr. Plinkett says, you may not have noticed it, but your brain does. And, and so you can write tremendously heroic female characters. You just got to keep things real. And when you soften the men up, and when you toughen up the women, and people wonder, why doesn't this work? It doesn't work because nobody believes it. Because it's a lie. Because, you're, because, because they're using this as a bludgeon to get you to believe the things that they don't even themselves believe. I'll tell you what, the, the, best, the best take on this, and then I'll get to questions. The best take on this I ever heard, ever, by far, was from, uh, from Bill Burr. If, if you haven't seen his, uh, his set about how uh, Titanic is a horror movie, for men, it's it's absolutely fantastic. But he's got it exactly right, you know. Uh, he talks about the this uh, supposed uh, pay gap, and the pay gap is due to the fact that you know the seventy-two cents on the dollar. It's men work longer hours in more dangerous jobs. I saw a chart that that compared the the uh, the um, vocational fatality rate between men and women how many people get killed on the job. And I, I want to say that of the total number of people who get killed on the job, 94% of them are men, something, something like that, right? But, but Bill Burr is one of my all-time favorites. And he's basically saying, you know, uh, all these feminists are screaming about all the rest of this stuff. He says, until there's a fire in the building, in which case it's like, I'm just a girl. I, I, you know, people just break up laughing because he's not kidding. Uh, he says that, uh, hey, that, that, that extra dollar an hour is, uh, is, is the surcharge. This is a surcharge that, uh, that we get paid because if the ship starts going down, you get to go in the lifeboat, and I don't. And it's just absolutely magnificent. It's, it's the best kind of comedy because it's true. And, um, and yeah, and, and I think that's it. You know, people, the reason that, that the left is so self-destructive is because they are destroying the, the things that work that are based on biology, and they're not replacing them with anything because, because it doesn't work. And, and the people who they're selling it to know it doesn't work. You ask these uh, young feministas about, do you, you know, these, these guys who are with you out on the picket lines talking about women's rights, you, you anxious to date those guys? No, they want nothing to do with them. Why? Because they're weak and lame and gay, G-H-E-Y. That's the, that's the word, gay. Uh, so somebody could write better female characters. I can write a much better female character. And um, and that's because they're going to behave like women. And they're going to do courageous things because they have to. And placing them into a position to do that is important. But the, but all of this stuff to say that the, the main thing is, is that... Um, I, I use the word gay. I obviously, the word I should have used is effeminate. That's that's the word I was really looking for. You look at um, you look at uh, the the showrunners for the new Star Trek, and these are like the most effeminate males that are out there. And you can't have um, big gay, all gay. Yeah, you can't. You just you can't do it. They don't have any understanding of what makes male heroism work. And Gene Roddenberry did. By the way, uh, I don't 
uh, I, I try to restrain the, the name dropping at least to some kind of tolerable degree. But a couple of, uh, I don't know, a month ago now, there was kind of a sort of a farewell sort of uh, meeting for an organization that may or may not have existed, what the hell was called Friends for. Uh, and, um, and I got a chance to meet somebody who had not been there when I was running most of these meetings or hosting, you know, I think I did most of them. Uh, a plurality of them anyway. Um, and the person who was there was, um, was uh, Jason, Jason Patrick, right? Sure, I don't get this wrong because that made me a triple idiot. I'm virtually positive that's the name. No, not Jason Patrick. Who am I thinking of? I'm glad I did, caught myself before I uh, made myself more, even more embarrassed. Robert Patrick, not Jason Patrick. Sorry, sorry, Robert. Yeah, I was sitting there um, having uh, a lovely dinner with the with the Terminator, and um, and I'll tell you what, uh, he was just a really cool guy. It's one thing to sit, you know, you're sitting there next to the Terminator. And um, and he said something about how he was joking, I think, but he said um, uh, some somebody said something made him laugh, and and some and the person said, oh, why do you know? I just made I just made the the T one thousand laugh, and he says and and uh, and Robert Patrick says, um, yeah, I'm a I'm a real emotional guy actually. Uh, after every one of those takes, I, I pretty much just, you know, started to cry because I thought they were so beautiful and intense. I'm sure it was pulling my leg, but nevertheless, it was it was an impressive thing to see. But, um, you know, that's when that's when movies used to be uh, watchable, and they just keep they're so incapable of writing anything new. They're just so lazy. And so untalented, and they just keep trying to hack another version of this out. I was saying before about uh, about uh, Strange New Worlds, the two things that I that I just subtle things really. Uh, Doomcock pointed out one of them, I think. I think it was Doomcock. Uh, it was J.J. Abrams that put the Enterprise into a wormhole when it traveled, and I hadn't even really been aware of it. I just knew something felt wrong. But uh, I'm virtually positive it was Doomcock who said, that's not how the Enterprise travels. The Enterpri when the Enterprise goes fast, stars start moving. And that's iconic. It's iconic. And putting it in a wormhole is, and having it just go out of space, you know, it, that's not how the Enterprise functions. And, and, and you, you don't really notice it until you notice it. And then you realize, yeah, watching these things go, you know, that's how they, that's how they do the warp drive now. It's like they sit there and and when they come out of the warp, they go, foo, 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 foo. that's new. It's, it's, you know, it's Star Wars, it's not Star Trek. That's not how the Enterprise travels. You look at the Wrath of Khan and that baby, that Enterprise just cruises. It just sails. And, that's, and that makes it cool because it feels like a ship. I'll tell you a couple other things that, that original Star Trek didn't do and would not have succeeded. There would be no Star Trek if they'd made these fundamental mistakes. 
the original Star Trek show, when you saw combat between the two vehicles, they were never in the same frame. Now, that was conceivably a limitation of the special effects, but I'm not aware. Maybe, I know the Botany Bay and the Enterprise were in the same frame, but that was a big deal. When they're fighting the Klingons, they shoot the phasers, and the Klingons on the screen, but you never see the two ships in the same frame, which means that that ship is far away. Imagine, you know, you're in the 24th century, and you can engage a ship at, at a range greater than, you know, 300 yards. So the two things that they're doing now, which work, which work on Star Wars, because Star Wars is fantasy. In Star Wars, you got these two gigantic cruisers, and they're what? They're separated by what? A hundred yards, maybe? Green beams going that way, red beams going this way. It's an analog for something we know, and that that the thing that feels familiar about that is that's how ships used to fight back in the days of sail. They would just get super close to each other and launch these broadsides. Okay, but I don't buy it for, for starships. And and it just it feels wrong. And and the other thing that they're doing, and they started this on Next Generation, and it's the only thing about Axanar that I just can't stand, is that is that the Enterprise is not a fighter either. You know? Now you're seeing things where the you know Clan of this, and the Enterprise will roll over, and it'll follow it, and it'll go, you're going through the asteroid fields, and they're doing. All, it's not a star. It's not. A, it's not a fighter. It's a ship, it, and 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 you should treat it that way. And and so when you do things like put it in a wormhole, it's like, why did you do that? Because you think it looks better. I don't think it looks better. I think it's much more um, cliche, and it's much more iconic. To see. When the Enterprise is hauling butt, you see these things going like this? It's great. That's another thing, by the way. In a wormhole, you can't tell how fast you're going. In, in Star Trek, you could. You could look at the screen. And if you're doing Warp 2, the stars are doing this. If you're doing Warp 7, the stars are doing this. Simple. The other thing I saw that just made me realize how lazy these people are on Strange New Worlds. They go to this planet of the bad foreheads, which is, you know, this is what Star Trek does. It's, 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 uh, it's another alien species? Yeah, we got to think of some other new prosthetic that we can put here to make them look like aliens. So they go to the planet of the bad foreheads. And, and the Enterprise is at this planet and it's and they see it as a ufo and the enterprise is just hanging in the sky there just hanging there just like that it's like so if the enterprise can do that if the enterprise can just hang in space like that then okay so it can never fall out of orbit right it can it can, it can never do any of those things the enterprise doesn't enter an atmosphere entered an atmosphere one time and that was an emergency that on the uh, the episode where they pick up the fighter pilot and take him into a Enterprise. He's, the, he's not important, but his son's going to command the Saturn mission or something. So, so you see this, you know, you see this Enterprise just hanging in the sky like that. And at first you think, that's kind of pretty. But then you think, no, no. Somebody said, Geos uh, Dave Big Booty said it's in geosynchronous orbit. Dave, if it was in geosynchronous orbit, it would be invisible. It'd be a speck. So, you know, uh, 5708 Riviera says, how do you feel about it underwater? I thought in, I have to say, in Into Darkness, having the Enterprise underwater was cool. It's cool one time, you know, but then, but, but if you keep bringing the Enterprise into the atmosphere, then, the, look, 
the reason that they did it, the reason that there was, the, the reason that Roddenberry invented the transporter was because they did not have the budget to show the Enterprise landing every time they went to a new planet. They just didn't have the budget. He had to think of some way to cover this, you know. We got a lot of stock shots and stuff, so how, uh, how are we going to do this? I know. We'll, we'll invent this transporter thing. So, you know, it, it just, everything today is so lazy, it's unbelievable. And, and I want to talk about the unlazy things. I remember when I was writing the uh, Aurora script, and that movie will happen now if people sign up for this thing. I'll know that in a week. But if they do, uh, that Aurora movie that I wrote back in 2007, it's easy to do now. And, um, and I remember that one of the, that the, one of the major adventure points is got these two hab cylinders that are once you, you, so you do this burn and they're in close. And once, once the burn has happened, you're coasting all the way to Jupiter. So they just kind of start the thing rotating, and they just sort of let these things go out because the further away from the axis, the the the, the not only the, the stronger the gravity, but the lower the gravity gradient is, the better. It's just better. And I had these little capsules that would go back and forth out to these things. Great. And I had to have a scene where I had to have somebody try to escape from one of these capsules because it jammed, and that gave me all of these super cool visuals of these gigantic enormous hab things swinging around and kids it's it's great it's a great adventure scene but i had to i had to find a way this took me days maybe weeks i had to find a believable reason for why that capsule would fail and then i had to find a believable reason why the backup would fail and that took me weeks if not months to figure that out because Otherwise, it's all, isn't that convenient? You know, and, and that's all movies are now. All, it's all Star Wars is, it's all, isn't that convenient? Yep, yeah, they happen to be in the same bar as these other people they've been looking for across the galaxy, just sitting there at the bar, same planet, same time? Yep. Okay. Uh, there you go. Um, so, there you go. Um, uh, JWTD Kuda says, have you ever watched The Expanse on Prime? It's a sci-fi show. It was pretty good. It stayed grounded pretty well. I did. I watched, um, I watched every episode of The Expanse, and I, and, I, and I really tried to like it, you know, but I never really did. Uh, I never really did. Um, first of all, you know, it's like the United Nations. Really? Really? Okay. Um, and the Beltas, you know, that whole thing, you know, the oppressed poor kind of, you know, it's like, come on, you know. I've actually thought the, the, the I thought the, that, that it was an interesting concept in that regard. I didn't particularly like the, the, the ships, and I didn't like the presumption that um, we've covered the gravity problem because we're either always on a burn or... We've got these magnetic boots. Okay. Uh, and, and frankly, I just didn't like the characters very much. You know, I got to like them better, but I, I never got to like them. I liked Amos a lot. I thought he was pretty cool. Um, but generally speaking, um, I don't... Uh, it just, you know, didn't interest me. And, and spoiler alert, uh, you got the last, was it last two seasons? Maybe three. Certainly the last two seasons, you've got this renegade... Um, messiah-like um, 
terrorist leader of the of the Belters, and he uh, sends these asteroids to hit the Earth, and millions of people die, tens of millions, maybe hundreds. And I like Miller too. Yeah, I agree with that B player. I thought he was great. That actor is fantastic, and he's in uh, the latest Daily Wire movie, um, something James. Um, so you've got this guy who's killed tens of millions of people, right? you got two seasons of going after this guy. And so here comes the, the finale. And what happens? He's disintegrated by going through a barrier. Okay, it's kind of like, like Han Solo falling off the, the, the walkway, right? That's it? Thomas Jane, he's fantastic. I love Thomas Jane. Thomas Jane did a movie called 1921 or something like that. He's got this, he plays this uh, Oklahoma farmer. It's a fantastic film. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, uh, but anyway, it's like, okay, so where's the, where's the emotional payoff for this, right? Where's the emotional payoff? You've just created the supervillain does he get does he get killed by um, by uh, you know the the Rossanti? No. Do our characters take him out? No. Does anybody get redemption by taking him out? No. D nobody takes him out. He's killed all these people that we like. I thought um, uh, what's his name? Uh, who is the character actor? He was in I want to say maybe the third season. He was the uh, older guy. Uh, he was a great actor. And they spaced him. Okay. Now, now I want his death avenged. What happens? And it's like, oh, I just, I just faded through this barrier and I got disintegrated. Well, that was no big payoff. And then, and then this, this ultimate cop out with this, with this son, you know, his son and, 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 the, and the woman's son. It's like, this guy is the primary accessory to the death of a hundred million people or more. And what, what do they do with him? Well, he changes his name, changes his transponder, and goes sailing off. Does he pay a price? Nope. I don't care. I don't care. Yeah, we'll get to questions when I feel like. Uh, I don't care. Just, nope, I don't care. Um, elements of it were okay. Uh, I liked, um, uh, oh gosh, this is a reflection of how memorable the characters were. Uh, so there's the female marine. Uh, she she was not bad. Um, it's still a little okay, um, but uh, what was the drummer and um, and and another D word? But the the woman who played the uh, she eventually became the Belter thing, a real severe looking woman. She was great, I have to say. She was really good. Um, Naomi killed Marcus. Did she? I don't think she did. I thought he just went into the into the bubble. And that and by the way, once the show had the bubble, I thought, okay, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I just it just never really just never really hit with me. I did like um uh oh, come on. Uh Serenity a lot. And there's some of the some of that is, is something I'd like to do, um, but anyway. Uh, okay, well, well, have a have a good trip there, Akuda. Um, thank you, appreciate it. This is it's just great to know that uh, that you're that you're one false comment away. I know you're joking, but uh, thanks for playing along. 
Um, oh, so she set the bomb that, that caused the portal. Okay, well, all right. There were no memorable lines. Uh, Astroner, uh, no, sorry, Dave Big Booty says, no more run and I aim to misbehave. Yeah, now that's writing, man. That's writing, and and um, you know, uh, you know, hey, if I ever, if I'm gonna kill you, you're gonna be awake, you're gonna be facing me, and you're gonna be armed, something like that. Those, well, that, that's writing. That's actually cool. And and then my friend Adam Baldwin is that, and he's just kicking ass in that thing. He's fantastic. He's a great. Those are great characters, and and it's a well-written show. And I just didn't think the expense uh, really was. Uh, so anyway, enough of this. Onward. Uh, I'm going to start with BillLittle.com because I, I shorted that last time and that's not something I particularly like doing. And if we have any time left over, haha, uh, we'll take a look at the uh, Facebook thing. What else we got? Um, it's <sighs> another one of these. questions and more and here we go once again uh, Henry Lumley and you're you're just the, the, just I can't tell you how much we appreciate you doing all this stuff all right here we go uh, from JR uh, topic nice to get that tell them what you're gonna tell them and tell them and then tell them what you told them uh, topic midterms and rhinos Hi, Bill. Hey, JR. First of all, congrats to Natasha for becoming an American. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for the kind words that really made her cry. She just, she's just overwhelmed, and so was I. I was just so uh, proud of her and so proud of you, too. So thank you. Thank you all for that. I have no doubt she'll be a great addition to our country and will fight for and vote for freedom and patriotism. She will, and she's a crack shot, too. Um, it seems the Supreme Court leak overturning Roe v. Wade didn't move the needle in the polls toward the Democrats. It didn't. As a matter of fact, polls showed that Republicans gained a few points since then, and we are still poised to wipe them out in November. I did some piece on that and uh, on how shocked I was at how little impact it had, because everybody said you overturned Roe v. Wade to the Republican Party. However, Republicans are notorious for snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, yeah, I've seen that happen. Or winning everything and then doing nothing to reverse the damage done by the Democrats, which then disgruntles conservative voters who then won't vote in the next election, causing Democrats to win again ad infinitum, and the cycle continues. Also, the Washington GOP seems to always fo foolishly compromise and cross partisan lines with the angry Democrats and pass slightly less sucky bills and laws that screw us over. How can the people make it clear to Republicans in Washington that we aren't kidding around this time? It's not merely enough that we win control. We need to reverse the damage done by these commies. Amen. Not only that, we need to impeach Biden as many times as possible to make it clear that two can play at this game. I agree. I think seven impeachments seems about right. Um, what can people do to make it clear to Republicans in Congress that they must do what we sent them there to do? No compromises with Democrats. No co-sponsoring bills with Democrats. No standing by and doing nothing. We cut the Democrats out of everything, and we just reverse this Marxist nightmare. How can we do this? I feel the rhinos have stranglehold on the GOP. They might as well be Democrats. The only thing worse than a Democrat is a Republican you can't count on. Amen to that too, brother. What do you think? How can we change this terrible cycle? God bless Joe Ruff from Hudson Valley, New York. Thank you, Joe. Uh, so yes, uh, spot on agree with 
every single one of those things you said, I think you got everything just exactly right. That's the problem. The problem, we have a two-part problem in this country. One of them is winning elections, and then the other one is having the politicians that we sent to do the things that we thought we were getting them to do to actually do it. Um, it starts off, uh, JR, I think, with a realization that that our A-team is in business. All the best conservative minds go into, either go into business or the military or something like that. Their A-team goes into politics. But th there's a much bigger problem, and that is, uh, is a structural problem. Ideally, ideally, Republicans would go to Washington in order to make government smaller and to reduce their own power. That's not how politicians are wired. Uh, and so the people who want to become politicians in the uh, Democratic Party, at least there's no conflict. Yeah, we're going to go and get elected and spend as much money as we can. It's very, very, very difficult to find people who... The, the Democrats, the left, has intentionally made running for office unbearable. You watch what happened to Brett Kavanaugh or whatever, and they've made it intentionally unbearable so that no decent person would ever think about putting himself or his family through that. And, and so you're at another disadvantage, right? Um, you got people that love their families. And, 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 and frankly, when you're talking about conservatives, you got people with better things to do. Um, so you have to find either somebody that doesn't want to be there and is going to step up, like my friend uh, Gary Rabine up in, um, in uh, Illinois is running for governor make a fine governor he doesn't want to be governor he just wants to live in a well-governed state so you know he's fantastic um and so you're you're stuck with well so so what you know we, just for the sake of the argument you got 425 members of, of uh, the house of representatives so let's say 210 there and 50 senators you're talking about pushing 300 politicians on the federal level right 250 politicians and of the 250 Republican politicians in very, very round numbers, dividing them in half, right? Of that 250, five of them are there for uh, openly correct ideological reasons. And you can count them on a hand, you know? And, and, and many of them are not there anymore because politics isn't their life. Trey Gowdy's not in Congress anymore. And I, when I heard he wasn't coming back, I thought, what? He's got other things to do. And, and, that guy fought for the Constitution, and uh, and Ted Cruz has been a solid, solid, consistent champion of, of liberty and, and so on. And uh, right now, I have to tell you, I think the best hope in terms of answering your question, what can we do differently next time? I, I personally think that the, the, the best hope out there is DeSantis. And I'm not talking even about DeSantis as a candidate, because even if he were to run for president and get elected, that's still one guy. But the thing about DeSantis that I find so um, encouraging is that DeSantis goes into open warfare with these people. He doesn't start it, but when he gets when he gets hit, he hits back, and um, and he is providing evidence that not only does fighting back against the left not destroy you, on the contrary, the more you fight back, the stronger you become, and the more likely you are to get reelected. So I'm hoping. That some percentage of the weasels will, you know, will will say, well, well, look at DeSantis. He's called these people out, and his numbers just keep going up. And he's, Disney, basically said, hey, you know, screw the entire 
world, you know? We've got the secret agenda, and here we are in a secret meeting to talk about how we're going to put all of this stuff into, into this children's programming. Ha, 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 ha. And it leaks. And then the sentence says, oh, so that's what's going on. Okay, this isn't, these aren't junior staffers. This is, this is company policy. Okay, well, if you want to, if you want to uh, inflict those values, those political values on your entertainment, then we're not going to treat you as entertainment anymore. We're certainly not going to treat you as pro-family or pro-American -enter entertainment. We are going to treat you as a hostile political organization, which is what you are. And all of these benefits that you've had, which are a result of the residual love for Disney, we're going to take them away. They lost, last I heard, $50 billion in, um, in value. And I did see a number that said that in the space of one year, Disney went from something like 72% approval to 31, 35% approval. That is crazy. Dave Big Booty pointed out uh, something that I was just about to say. They just had a list of the top 10 amusement, uh, theme parks in the country. Disneyland and Disney World are not in the top 10. They used to be one and two. These are consequences. These are consequences. So, um, I argued uh, on, uh, on the Virtue Signal twice, as it turned out, that uh, there may be a question about this coming up, but if there is, consider it uh, answered. 63 billion? I knew it must have been more than 50. Thank you, Coffee, Coffee Shinado. 63 billion dollars. That's a significant chunk of change. They're going to miss 63 billion dollars. Um, so, okay, you want to play ball, you want to you do your politics? then we'll treat you like a political entity. Um, now, uh, when I did the two virtue signals a couple hours ago with Zoe, um, uh, yeah, Ian Little says, I would imagine what Walt would think about the course of Disney today. I actually genuinely think if Walt Disney could see what Disney has become, he simply wouldn't have been, he just would have just walked away from it. Uh, but, on this virtue signal, the first one I did, I said, if, if the country and the culture are a living thing, and they are, then in my opinion, what just happened is an indication that we can take the patient off of the critical list and move them to the, to the serious. That, that, uh, that the American experiment is no longer in critical condition, now it's just in serious condition. Lots of stuff can still go wrong, you're in big trouble, you're not out of the woods by any means. But when the Ministry of Truth fell apart because of mockery, that was an enormous milestone. When, when the Department of Homeland Security Office of the Office of Disinformation when that simply was laughed out of the uh, laughed out of existence, that was absolutely, absolutely monumental. It's monumental. It's it's soft landing monumental. We didn't have to sue it out of existence. We didn't have to, uh, you know, we didn't have to go look into the bottom of the lake for where our weapons were before they were knocked overboard by accident in that terrible boating accident. We didn't have to do any of that stuff. That th there was enough fundamental strength left in the country to laugh this miserable, oppressive, totalitarian idea out the door. It just plain, it's gone. It's, it, it's on hold, it's done. We'll never see it again. It's an embarrassment. It drove their numbers down. If people were buying this stuff, it would be time to pack up, but they're not. 
And what's happening on a daily basis is more and more and more Americans are starting to know what all of us have known for decades. And that is that these people, they're starting to learn what they really are about rather than what they say they're about. I was talking with Zoe about this and said, well, I'm worried about you know, them coming back with this argument, that argument. I said, but so the Democrats have the best advertising and marketing department in the history of politics, but they don't have a product. They, they, they're just a sales force with no product. They're tremendous marketers and advertisers, but they've got no product. And people are beginning to realize that. So, um, so now uh, you've, got, um, you've got that whole dynamic going on. You really have to be missing the point. I mean, if you're a politician and you're, and look, let's say you're a Republican politician, your main objective in life, like all politicians, is to get elected and then get reelected into perpetuity, right? Let's just say, okay, people like that, people who go into politics are people who, who are willing to, to at the very least appear to be on the side that's, that's winning. It's self-evident. People, and th this is where the left really gets creamed. You know, in fact, this is so common to the left that when when a, when you hear a left wing politician coming up and talking about how he loves the country, and Barack Obama mentioning how he spent a thousand Sundays uh, listening to Reverend Wright, and he makes that announcement in front of a flag factory, there's fifty American flags behind him. He does that to fool the rubes, and the left knows that they got wink. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna pretend to love the country just so we, so we get elected. Once we get elected, then um, then we will. Uh, We'll go back to uh, destroying the country. Marusha uh, was kind enough to quote me. The problem is the Democrats have given out free candy and the Republicans are selling vegetables. And vegetables are better for you than candy. It's, it's not an easy sale. So, so if you stay with me on this, uh, JR, um, if it becomes as obvious as it is to me and to you and I think is getting widely accepted out there, that woke is finished, that woke is a catastrophe. Not only is it a catastrophe, but that everything is moving hard right. Everything is moving, really moving hard towards conservatism. And the Roe v. Wade thing is just the, is the icing on the cake, right? It's like, this was the third rail. You do this and it's the end of the Republican Party. The, 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 the middle of the country will go hard left if you repeal Roe v. Wade. Republicans gain four points. Even rhinos should be able to, to see this, right? So even if your entire mission is in life is to get reelected, at least for the moment, that's the direction the tide is moving. Be conservative and you'll get elected. Be woke and you will lose your election or you'll lose your seat immediately after. How many Democrats just aren't even running now because they know what the numbers are? I consider that to be just smart. They're good politicians. A good politician says, I've decided to spend time with my family. Good politician would rather walk away from an election than than get into a fight they know they're going to lose and they're going to lose all of this stuff. So. So, the question is, uh, Joe, is will the actions of guys like um, DeSantis, standing up and hitting back hard, and watching his numbers go up, watching the whole country move to the right, will that be visible enough to? Republican politicians for them to realize that it's in their own personal self-interest as Weasley politicians to go with the conservative uh, ideas. Because this idea about being friendly to these people, if, you're, if we're nice to them, they'll be nice to us. 
how, how, how many times does Lucy have to pull the football away? You know, every time, apparently. That's the answer. By the way, speaking of uh, pulling away the football statistics, I just had a small thought not related to anything. Um, there's some guys out there with uh, some, got some smart people watching the show. Statistically, um, does anybody know statistically what the chance of you plugging in a, uh, a USB device is the first time? What is the what are the statistical odds of plugging that USB device in correctly the first time? Well, I've done some research on this, as it turns out, and the answer is uh, it is zero percent. There is zero percent chance of plugging it in right the first time. What's the percentage chance of plugging it in right the second time? It's about thirty percent, because you miss it the first time, then you flip it over, and then it doesn't work that time either, and then you realize ah, I didn't do it right the first time. If you put it back in, then you get closer to hundred percent. So I throw that out. John Pershing, three times every time. You beat me to it. Exactly. You put it in, it doesn't work. Flip it over, doesn't work. Realize, oh, it just wasn't going the first time. Uh, look, I'm a guy who remembers the day when you had to set dip switches for each one of your different, uh, you know, um, oh, what's the word? Uh, it's not assets. You know, printers and all the rest of this stuff. So I'm happy about USB. That's fine. Um, but man alive I don't I, I just honest to God don't know how many times uh, happy birthday to your sister Eric uh, I don't know how many times that's happened but it's it's a hundred percent of the time uh, with that said they're really really good um, yes with one side has the USB icon I agree and, and and if you look at it they do and the problem is is that they're printed they're not printed they're stamped okay so which side has the USB icon is it this side or is it this side this side, this side, this side, this side. Now it turns out it's that side. Now if they made these things white, or if they, you know what, if they put a red dot, a red dot on the top, problem solved. These are first world problems. Anyway, uh, Jr. Hope that hope that uh, helped because uh, I think I think things are going really remarkably well, even though. We're lying in the, you know, in the in the intensive care unit with tubes and and coming out of our bodies and going into them. And, and I'm not going to specify how many tubes, but it's a bunch. So I'm not saying, hey, everything's copacetic. I'm just saying what I said to Zoe uh, earlier on the show was, Zoe said, well, you know, we're not, we're there's so much damage. I said, agreed, but you can't start repairing the damage until you stop causing it. You can't start recovering until you stop getting sick. I think the fever is broken. I really do. Uh, Tiki Rocket says, is that a Vincero watch, Bill? No, it is not. It is a Swatch watch, which I've had for, low these, nearly 20 years. I love it. I love it because it's thin. And uh, nowadays you can't find a, a thin watch with a magnificent, manly, steely-eyed male look to it. Nowadays you have to strap a brick onto your wrist. Um, so, yeah. Marouche is right. First step of getting out of the hole is stop digging the hole. And I really get the feeling that's what we've done. So, moving on. Uh, Furball321, new Formite. Hello, Furball. Glad to have you here. Uh, just a thought, guys. Maybe just post one question till the day of the cast to give others a chance to get their questions answered on the week they post it. Also, consider asking a question instead of posting a dissertation. I'll delete this post before the cast. Maybe I didn't refresh the page, but in any event, Furball, thank you for that. That's a that's a, a damn fine idea. 
Uh, the shorter the questions are, the more I can get to them, but that's not really the question asker's fault. That's mostly me just doing my typical nonsensical muttering. Oh, hey, Fiery Wacko, Fiery Wacko has a question. Uh, what kept me from flying professionally? I did a podcast uh, yesterday, a King Dolphin podcast on, uh, on flying. So they asked me to come on and talk as a pilot. Uh, and one of the questions they asked was what stopped, you know, they were started out with just two guests and the host, Ray, and then it was, ended up being five of us, so Ray and four guests. And the, and the question was, um, I keep getting this error from spec, join Spectrum Free Trial. No, don't. Okay. And then it comes back again an hour later. Uh, I don't have the link. Um, I, I, I don't have it. I don't know what it is. It's uh, King Dolphin. And I don't even know if it's up yet. But in any event, it's just King Dolphin. Uh, but um, uh, Fiery uh, Wacko uh, said, um, how come you didn't answer that? Uh, well, the, everybody else answered it. And to be perfectly honest with you, they said, well, just kind of go around uh, the circle and just you know, everybody take a shot at it. And I was doing way too much at the talking anyway. I mean, I, I, I could have jumped in there, but he just kept moving and, and, uh, and I didn't, I was already monopolizing the, the conversation. Although to be fair, uh, I was really, you know, these guys are great pilots are professional. One, one of them is professional pilots they are all great pilots. Pilots are utterly fantastic people, uh, especially if you see the latest, um, uh, moving back to America, uh, thinking on your feet. I talk about what it takes to be an airline transport pilot and compare that to the clowns that are around the country. If um, AB has it, I will uh, put it up so that we can post it along with this Stratosphere Lounge uh, thing. There we go. Yeah, two hours and four minutes. Look at that. And right now, it's at... Um, Virtually unbelievable, 44 views. Uh, but it was nice to be able to talk about um, being a, uh, as a pilot. Um, anyway, uh, so the question that went around was, um, why, why aren't you a professional pilot? And there was a professional pilot there. And then uh, a guy was in you know, civilian air patrol, so we fly a lot. And then there was... Uh, a guy who was a relatively low-time guy and me, so that's, yeah, so that's all of us. And, I, and I'm glad I didn't get a chance to answer because um, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to offend a professional. But if they'd asked me straight out, why, why didn't you, um, why aren't you a professional pilot? Why don't you fly for a living? My immediate answer would be because I really enjoy flying. That's why. I love it. And, uh, and, and that's the last thing I would want, you know, is to turn this into a job. Um, and somebody, one of the members of the panel, got pretty close to that. The youngest, younger guy, uh, newer pilot, anyway, said, uh, "You know, uh, yep, I don't, not not really a big fan of having to get up at 5:30 in the morning to drive down or, or wake up in an airport hotel to 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 take a bus to the airport while it's dark, go sit in a very nice jet, and have a list of exactly where I'm going, exactly when I'm expected to be there. Uh, you know, it's." It's, I don't want to say it's not flying because the view is spectacular. The office view is tremendous, but 
it's not really flying. And one of the things that we did have a good conversation about training and training is um, uh, really taking a beating in this country. It's not bad yet, but it's heading in that direction. Um, and uh, and, I, and I basically said, listen, you, when you, if you're a, a private pilot, one of the toughest things you have to deal with is, and I mean really, it's, it's extremely hard on the ego. If you've ever flown an airplane, especially a light airplane, with a fundamental autopilot, just like a just like a wing lever even, it's just astonishing how much better that thing is at flying that airplane than you are. If you if you're on a course, it just tracks the center line, and and you, you look at a GPS plot, you know, in, in, in you can see here's me heading in this direction, you know, and then here comes the GPS, and then and then here's here's me again, and here's here's the autopilot. Uh, but to be perfectly honest with you, we are very nearly at the point where our jets can fly from one place to another without a pilot. Honestly, just certainly unmanned drones are doing it, and and with the exception of the takeoff, the entire flight's automated. And um, and when you turn a jet, you don't you don't turn the jet anymore. You turn the dial. You basically, you know, departure says turn right heading three one zero degrees. You don't you don't turn the plane and, and look down and, and wait to get to three one zero. You reach up to the to the panel and you get to the autopilot and you spin this thing to the right until it says 310 and then it just turns. It turns perfectly. And it'll fly right down 310. As a matter of fact, there was a particularly strange accident that occurred many years ago over the Amazon in Brazil. And it was a mid-air collision. And uh, it was a either, I think it was a Learjet. It took the wing off of or most of the wing off of the 737. 737 went down. Everybody on board killed. Learjet landed safely. They were out in a very distant area where the radar coverage wasn't good. The Learjet had requested a non-standard altitude or had been given a non-standard altitude. I don't remember which, but the Learjet was on a... Because east is odd, west is even. If you're, if you're traveling from 0 to 180 degrees, you fly at uh, 17,000, 19,000, 21. Odd numbers going... The other way, you're flying even numbers, so that head-on traffic has a thousand feet separation. You, you almost never hit a plane by overrunning it, unless you're chasing my plane, uh, which has a you know, calendar and seven airspeed indicators. Uh, the plane I used to have. Um, but this particular accident happened because both of those both of those aircraft were on autopilot, and GPS was taking them down the airway so accurately. GPS is good to four feet. And both of them went right down the center line of this airway. And okay, so they hit each other. I've heard now that a lot of guys specifically put them, give themselves just a little bit, you know, you don't want to get more than, you certainly don't want to get more than a mile off of your airway, but just dither it a little bit, just get it a little bit off. I think that's probably the way to go. Um, anyway, uh, so my, my point was about the, the uh, professional flying is that the, the planes essentially fly themselves from point A to point B, and they, generally speaking, do a better job than we do. The reason there are pilots on board uh, airliners is in case of emergency. And the problem is, is that we're not training. That's not true. That's not true. We are training guys. We have the best, we've done 21 years without a fatality, without a crash of a major airliner in the United States. 21 years, that's 40,000 flights a day for two decades. It's a perfect safety record. You can't improve that. It's perfect. 
It's astonishing. It's the most astonishing thing in modern society. Nobody talks about it, but I think about it all the time. No airplane crashes in this country for, on an airline, uh, you know, with a with a jet, big big airliner. It's not crashed since two thousand and one, and and um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But Sully is a perfect perfect example. Uh, the reason he was so lionized, and rightfully so, rightfully so, was because Sully was exactly why you put a human in an airplane. And and I saw, needless to say, I, I, I read the entire reports, I saw the movie, uh, and I have a pretty good feeling that if Sully wasn't in that jet, then his co-pilot would have done a good job too. Uh, by the way, for those of you interested, since the question came up in, in flying and so on, I can tell you the moment, if you watch the movie or if you listen to the transcript, I can tell you the exact instant where those lives were saved. I could, I, 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 the second I heard it, I knew that's when, that instant was when they were going to be okay. And that is when he, he calls in, he says, we lost, um, we lost both our engines to bird strikes. Uh, and, the, and, and the JFK, uh, LaGuardia? I think it was LaGuardia. Uh, LaGuardia Tower says, "Okay, uh, you've got um, you've got uh, we're we're, we're landmark, You've got Petersburg four miles off to the right, you know, and so on." And and Sully says, "Unable." That's the instant where that plane was saved. Unable. In other words, Sully knew I'm out of engines, and now I'm in a glider, and now I've got a limited, we've got a limited pool of energy, and if I spend this energy correctly, then I will do what needs to be done to survive this accident, which is, I'll, I'll explain in just a second. But if I start trying to, to, to go to places that I don't have the, the, the bucks for, the energy bucks for, then we're going to, then we're going to stall the plane or we're going to fly into a cliff. We're all going to die. Fatalities in aviation are caused by two things. They're caused by the speed of the impact, but much more importantly, they're caused by the angle of the impact. So what that means is, is that if you if you, it doesn't matter what airplane you're in or how good a pilot is. If you hit the ground at a 15, 20, 30 degree angle, anything higher than that, bad, bad, bad day. Nobody survives a 90 degree impact with the ground. No one ever, ever. But if you can reduce that angle, then your chances of survival go up astronomically. And the slower you can do that, even better. But if somebody asks me, would you rather hit the, the ground twice as fast or, or, at, or at half the angle? I'll take half the angle every time. So, what Sully realized was that he only had so much energy in the airplane. He's got airspeed and he's got altitude. He, he's got kinetic energy, he's got potential energy. He can convert the potential energy into kinetic energy, but he's, not, it, he's just spending money. He's not getting any deposits into that account. The amount of energy that that aircraft had when those engines went out was the maximum amount of, of, of energy bucks that he ever had, and he knew that I'm not getting any more. I've got to spend what I've got wisely, and I cannot afford to get to one of these airports. So therefore, now what are we going to do? Okay, now we're not going to make an airport. So where do we land? I have no doubt that if he was out in the middle of nowhere, he'd put it down on a freeway if the traffic was light enough. He's not going to kill people on the road to do that. So, okay, the Hudson. And, and the reason that everybody got out of that was because because the airplane was, even though the airplane was out of power, 
it was under control. In fact, it was not just under control, it was under fingertip control. It was absolutely, absolutely featherlight control. So that meant that Sully kept his speed up enough so that he was always flying an airplane and never a passenger on a couple thousand pounds of aluminum and steel heading down. And since he could control, since he had it, since he kept his airspeed high enough, he could control that impact angle. And furthermore, he was such a good pilot. And, and, and fortunately with the Hudson, you've got what is essentially a real long runway. So what Sully was able to do was he was able to say, we're going to make this angle as shallow as possible. Yep, we got it. Yes. Okay, now, now that we got the super shallow angle, let's just hold her off, hold her off, hold her off, hold her off. And then we're going to get the two cookies. We're going to come in as shallow as possible and at the slowest possible speed. And, um, and that's just what pilots do. And uh, did he have full flaps? No, he didn't have full flaps. He, he had some flaps. There's a, there is a setting, a flap setting that is the best setting for uh, trying to go as slowly as possible for landing. And then there's another one for, for all this stuff. I did see the Sully movie with Tom Hanks. I generally liked it. I certainly liked the recreation. What they did to him was shocking and shameful, and, and it was great. Uh, Ladyhawk says he kept the nose up. I'm not trying to be difficult. To be perfectly honest with you, what he really did was he kept the nose down. Right? This is this is how people get killed. I see it all the time. Uh, I didn't bring it up on the on the show. I thought about it prior to the show, and it was not appropriate to bring up on the show. But it, it bears mentioning since I was asked. And the question that would have been interesting to ask would have been, do you know anybody who's been killed in, in an airplane? And the answer for me is, yes, I do. I know two of them. Were they close friends of yours? No. But they were people who I would walk into a room with and recognize and say hi. I knew two of them, two people I knew, killed in airplanes. And both of them were killed because they, because they, one of them did something stupid really stupid and he was a high time instructor and the other one let the reptile kill him as i've said many times on the show my flight instructor's name is jeff larkin he occasionally watches programs he's not only taught me how to fly well and give me a love a, a, a love of, of flying he he has saved my life on at least three occasions and probably more uh, on a second lesson we're walking out to the glider and i sold it on the fourth of july in 1991 and uh we're walking out for the second flight lesson, and he said to me, Bill, here's the thing. Uh, if things go south up there, your reptile brain's going to take over. It's going to be so scary that your reptile brain's going to take over, and my job is to make sure that the reptile knows what to do. I thought, that's the best, that's the best advice I ever heard in my life, ever. So that's how we trained, constantly, rope breaks. You don't lose an engine very often at all, but in a glider, you lose a you lose the engine because the rope breaks. That's fairly frequent. That's kind of like every 150, 200, 300 toes. That's relatively common. So the first thing we practice is rope breaks. We're behind the tow plane. We're hooked up. We wag our little rudder, and we're going off, and we start rolling down the runway, and we got much more efficient wings, so we start flying a long time before he does. We're flying four feet above the runway, and he takes off. Right? And we start banking out, and as we start the bank, and, and flying in formation, my first solo flight ever, ever. Seven and a half hours of instruction, and on my first solo flight, I'm flying a formation flight, flying behind the stow plane. And, and so we would go up there, and he would say, okay, we're going to practice a rope break. And there's a release from the front seat, there's a release from the back seat, He's, the instructor's in the back. Okay, all right, ready? Here we go. And pulls the thing, and poof, rope is, turn around. 
turn away from the terrain and go back and land. You never want to try that on a heavy wind because you got a tailwind component. That's what you'll do if you have to, but for training purposes. Okay, so we would do rope breaks at 1,200 feet, 1,000 feet, something like that. And I said to him specifically, I said, Jeff, how, how low can we do this? In other words, how hard can we train without getting hurt? I said, well, we'll see. So we started doing them at 800. Then we started doing them at 400. Rope break at 400 feet is challenging. And we might have done one a little lower than that. Um, and, and by the way, when they give them to you after the first one, they don't tell you it's coming. You're just sitting there. And re you ready? Yeah, let's go. Okay, let's go fly. Poof. Looks like you lost the rope. Okay. My point is, is that because of the amount of training I had in, and the expectation of the rope break, the reptile in my head instantly knows. Lose the power, get the nose down. Immediately. Immediately. Vibration, anything. Nose down. Because if the nose is down, you're in a glider. And as long as you're in a glider, as long as you're moving above the stall speed of the airplane, you have control over the airplane. You can control the angle of impact. You can control where you're going to land. But if you don't do that right away, the second that engine goes out and your nose is up, you are losing that energy out of that box and you're not getting it back. So instantly, instantly, nose down. And and now, now we're gliding. The... Um, the guy I know who got killed uh, lost an engine over the airport. And he, he, he as uh, uh, John Pershing says, instinct is to, um, is to pull back. You've you got no engine, you want to pull the nose up. You want to keep the nose up. You don't want to crash the airplane. That's how you get killed. You keep the nose up, and you keep the nose up, and you keep the nose up, and the money isn't there. It's not there. The energy is not available, and it cannot be made available. And you have to understand that the second you get into your plane for the first time is that in that situation, you have got in the bank what you've got when that engine goes, and you will never get any more of it. So Ladyhawk says, I thought Sully was trying to keep the engines out of the water. What he was doing was he controlled, he put the nose down immediately. That's the first thing he did, got the nose down, set up the glide, realized he's going in the Hudson, and then as he's once he's got the angle made, once he's no longer going to go in like this, he's got the angle made, then he's keeping the nose up at the last couple seconds because what he's really trying to do is bleed off as much speed as possible. He wants to, he wants to ideally, ideally, and I think he pretty much did this, what you want is you want to stall the plane into the water at a foot above the water line, right? You just want to as slow as possible when it stops flying. But I know one guy who was in, a, in an airplane with three other people. And they were over the airport, and he lost his engine. And he and he tried to, I don't know what he tried to do, but whatever he tried to do is he tried to keep the airplane flying when he didn't have an engine. And he ran out of airspeed, and the plane stalled, and it went straight in, just like that. The other guy I know, who was killed, uh, was killed in in a Sky Arrow, which was the kind of plane I was flying at the time. And there were only two of them in all of Southern California. So the second this accident happens, this is a report that a Sky Arrow was crashed out of Santa Monica Airport. And it's like, I got a lot of phone calls. It's a very unusual, rare airplane, beautiful airplane. In fact, it's such a beautiful airplane, I'm gonna just grab a web picture of it just so you can see it, because it's a, just a cool little, cool little bird. Um, yeah, come here, you. <laughs> This is this is this is my airplane. Uh, here you go. Enjoy. 
unit that will spawn. I love this plane, and, and the reason I love it uh, so much is because um, it's a pusher. Uh, the prop's behind, and you can see that it's got a canopy the way God intended. Uh, you don't sit side by side, you sit fore and aft the way God intended, and um, it's got a side stick and a throttle, and since you can't see the propeller, you can pretend you're flying a jet. And it is the most forgiving and, and, and reliable airplane I've ever flown, and I never once, I have 500 hours in one of these things, and I never, ever, ever, ever had a hiccup. Not once. Just absolutely loved that aircraft. Slower than Christmas. This is the one with the, uh, the calendar instead of the airspeed indicator. But, God, that is fun to fly. And the visibility out of that's insane. Anyway, uh, the other guy I know who got killed was an was a instructor at Santa Monica Airport. He was well-known uh, instructor. In fact, at his funeral, there were a lot of pilots there. Lots. And... Uh, and this guy was, uh, I don't think it was his airplane. I think he was flying it or something. Anyway, he had, he had access to it. And he went, he, he said, hey, hey, Bill, thinking about getting a Skyro in here. <clears throat> Can we go for a ride in, in, in yours? Absolutely. Get up front. No problem. Um, so he, he rode in the front of mine. And then when his Skyro came in, he let me ride in his. His had the light sport version, which is a little bit lighter, and that made a difference. A thinner canopy and just shoulder harnesses and a lap belt, but no, um, no crotch straps. So it's not quite as much of a restraint system. So we went flying with this guy in his Sky Arrow, and he starts going out over the Pacific there off the coast and starts doing low and slow circles at about 300 feet. And I said, oh, I'm not going to mention his name. I said, we're, we're going to stop this right now. I am not comfortable being out here like this. I do not like this at all. Okay. No problem. You know, uh, no. Mm -mm. we got no energy. We're, we, 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 we lose an engine out here. We're going in the water. And we're not far, far off of land, but we don't have any options now. We got no, we, we put it down on Pacific Coast. That plane, I can land that plane in a, in a, in a flower garden. It's land so slowly. But he was doing circles out there real low. And I just said, nope, not for me. Uh-uh, we are going up or we're going back. One of the two. Oh, no problem. Yeah, okay, great. So my comfort zone and his comfort zone were different. And then next thing you know, uh, a couple months go by, and I hear that there's been a crash of the, the Sky Arrow right off of Malibu Pier. Witnesses said they saw the plane making uh, low, low turns, and they overbanked it, and it stalled and it went into the water. Uh, he was in the back. There was a, a, either a student or a friend of his in the front. Because it was a, I, I think it was because it was a light sport, sport version, when it hit the water, it hit at a steep angle and it hit so hard that his lap, that his shoulder belts tore the bulkhead out of the back of the plane where they're attached. It was that kind of force. The person up front survived. He was in the back seat, and it looked like he was going to make it. He was in the hospital for, I don't know, two weeks. It looked like he was getting better, and suddenly he just didn't. Um, and uh, and these things, let me, let me just be very, 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 very clear about what I'm trying to say here. Because the words that were about to come out of my mouth without qualification were, thoughts like this comfort me wasn't comforted by the loss of this guy. It didn't make me happy and didn't make me gloat. It made me very sad and it was a 
fun guy and a great guy, and I was not pleased about it. But when I heard what actually happened, I remember thinking to myself, well, that, that's not going to happen to me because I don't put the plane in that kind of position. Uh, they told a story about him at his, uh, at his funeral service where he would take a student up on the first flight and he would fly them into a box canyon. They're deadly. A box canyon is where you turn and it's a canyon. You think, oh, I'm going to fly through the canyon, but the canyon closes out and, and it closes out so steeply you can't turn the plane back around again. And uh, so you fly into a wall. And every time it's been an airplane versus the mountain, the mountain has won 100% of the time. It's no exceptions. The mountain wins every time. Uh, and he would, he would take people on their first flight into a box canyon, and then he would show them how to do kind of like a chandelle, like a, like a, like a climbing stall turn to get out of a box canyon. And I remember thinking, first of all, that's, an, that's a situation you can avoid. But, but on, your first, on your first lesson, it's the first thing you do is teach people how to get out of a box canyon? I, I don't know. I just thought that was just bizarre really, really bizarre and, um, and dangerous. Okay, that's, that's, that's what happened. Um, everybody makes mistakes. I've made mistakes, and, and I've done things that, that looking back on, I certainly wouldn't do now as I, as I got older. Uh, Mersh has asked this question a couple times. What would I advise people look for in a flight instructor if they know nothing about planes or the quality of teachers? Let me go to that real quick. This may come as a surprise to you, but it came as a surprise to me. You would think that flight instructors are the most seasoned old-timers out there. No. When you get your private license, the next thing you get is your commercial license. And if you want to be a pilot, professional pilot, you have to build up hours before the airline will, will hire you. And so the first paying job that professional pilots gets almost always is flight instructor. So they're actually, they're actually, this is the first time they've ever been paid to fly is as a flight instructor. That's getting to be more and more common every day. And so my advice would be, first of all, find somebody older. That would just out of the gate. Jeff Larkin was my primary flight instructor, best flight instructor I ever had, best instructor I ever had. And he was about my age. He wasn't much older than me. Um, but he was an exception. And, and the strongest advice I can give is, without question, I say this every time, if you're gonna learn how to fly starting gliders, it will, just starting gliders, it will save your life and it will make you a better pilot. You don't have to worry about the engine failing because it fails every time. You don't have to worry about hydraulics, you don't have to worry about electrical system, you don't have to worry about the radio, you don't have to worry about any of this. You can just worry about flying the airplane, pitch controls, airspeed, uh, and, um, and, and there is no power. Anyway, fly, being a glider pilot and having that instruction saved my life on at least three occasions and probably more. Um, and so when you hear these kind of accidents, I'm comforted by the fact that, that these people who are friends of mine, not close friends, but, but people who are friends of mine, I'm comforted when I read about what killed them that I can say, well, I wouldn't have done that. And... Um, And you can always get in trouble, and you can do dumb things. I, I can make this very simple, and we'll move on. Uh, 
one of the things that Jeff said to me fairly early in my flight training is I think, he said, Bill, you're going to be fine up there. Said, what makes you think that? He said, well, first of all, you're really switched on. You're really enthusiastic. You want, you want to go train. You want to train to the limits that we can train you. That alone is, is good. But he said, basically, your skill level is out here and your worry zone is here. In other words, you start to get scared way before you reach the limit of your ability to fly the airplane. The people who get killed are people who have a skill level here and their worry zone is here. They don't start to, they don't start to back up and start to, I'm not, this is, until they're really deep in trouble. Um, and I thought that was a profoundly good way to, um, you know, to do it. Um, you just, you should be nervous before you are, you should be nervous enough to get out of a bad, here's all the flying, right? Any, anything you want to know about flying, it's in this next sentence. The superior pilot uses his superior judgment so that he doesn't have to use his superior skill. That's flying. Um, Bart's treasure says, if, if landing a glider and speed is high, can you side slip in a glider? You not only can, you essentially pretty much need to. A glider does have um, speed brakes, spoilers. And basically they're just panels that come up in the middle of the wing and say, screw you wing, we're not gonna be flying over here. And so the purpose of a spoiler is it allows you to increase your rate of descent without increasing your actual speed. You're keeping your same speed, but you're coming down faster, then you close them up and then you zoom along. Um, so uh, yeah, that's, you know, that's it. Um, but the reason I didn't want to be a professional pilot, and look, I, when I was getting my instrument rating, my instrument flight instructor, we put that plane in more than 30 degrees of bank. She just plain freaked out. Uh, she had to pass her license as I did. You have to do 45 or 60 degree bank turns. You do a couple of these, you point to a heading. There's a tree out there on the horizon. Turn it into a 60 degree bank, bring it all the way around, roll it out within five or 10 degrees, depending on which license it is. Okay, so she's probably done three of those. And never again. And the plane get a little more upset than 30 degrees, she would just panic. And and my first flight ever, my first solo ever, was 65, 70 degrees of bank like this, two knots above the stall in order to ride this thermal. My first flight, I went, I flew for half an hour and gained, I don't know, 4,000 feet in an airplane that didn't have an engine in it. Training, kids. Training and... Uh, and finding the right people. But as I was saying on the show, nowadays the, the, the flight training in this country is heading in the direction that it is uh, already at overseas, especially in the third world. Uh, the pilots who are flying airliners, flying you know 737s and stuff in, in the third world, some of these guys have five, 600 hours. I've got a thousand. Uh, and the main problem is is that they're trained so that, okay, you want to fly a 737? Here's what you have to do. Here's your checklist to start up. Here's your, here's your checklist for takeoff. Here's your cruise checklist. Here's your landing checklist. And these guys can follow the checklist. And it's not their fault. It's just how they're trained. Fire, as long as, and as long as the checklist is going along just dandy, then they're fine. But anything happens outside the checklist, they just don't know what to do. They haven't been trained about it. The thing we talked about, the question I asked on the show was to these other pilots. I said, how many of you guys have had spin training? And I think all of them did, but 
But one of them said right away, it's like most, most flight instructors won't do spins. They say that they just scare the pilot and there's no reason to do it. <laughs> it's like, you know, one reason to do it would be in case you get in a spin. Planes don't spin the way they used to. It's hard to get a plane in a spin. You really have to try to get a Cessna into a spin, but they will go into a spin. And that's not even the point. It's not about spin recovery. As I said on the show, it's like you need to know what to do when you're adrenalized. One of the reasons that you that, that you should take like a firearms training class is not so that you can be a badass and, and you know walk down and plink things while you're in motion. It's so that you don't shoot your foot off while you're trying to get the gun out of the holster. That's what adrenalized behavior is. You 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 cannot possibly know what it's like. And you won't know what it's like in a simulator either. Believe me, there's a real difference between the real world and, and being in a sim in terms of your emotional commitment. And, and so the reason to take spin training is not just to get out of a spin, but the reason to take spin training is is because is it's just terrifying. You're on a full spin in an airplane. I guarantee you that has your undivided attention. You are pointing essentially, it feels like straight down and it's just going round and round and it's like, good God in heaven. Okay, so now that we're in a spin, this is essentially what they told me. We went up plenty high and we're in a spin. And I'm just looking out the window. Good God, we're, we're doomed. You know, that's that's how it felt. We're in a freaking spin. And and this calm voice behind me so bill what do you do to get out of a spin they told me this in advance center the rudder center the aileron so i center the ailerons and i center the rudder opposite rudder rather sorry center the ailerons opposite rudder so i did that and sure enough she came right out of a spin flew right out and then we did it again then we did it again and then we did it again did it again did it again when we finally had done it four or five times i wasn't afraid of spins anymore and i wasn't and i and and i knew I knew what it felt like to be really scared in the sky. And once you've been through it, your experience. Last thing I'll say on this subject is, somebody explained the, the essence of, of this to me by saying that here's how it works. When you become a pilot, they give you two, two big sacks. One sack is filled with luck and the other sack is experience and there's nothing in that sack. And your job is to get all of the luck from the luck sack into the experience sack without getting killed. Now I thought that's pretty much it, you know? Use, don't try to look, learn about, read about the mistakes of other kids, you're not gonna, read about the mistakes other pilots make, kid, you're not gonna live long enough to make them all yourself. Worked for me. All right, here we go. Um, uh, moving on, GK Masterson. Uh, here we go. What a fine fellow. See what I did there? G.K. Masterson, who is a woman, and quite a fine woman too, I have no doubt. Now that you're uh, close to done with the animation project, are you still thinking about getting into the gaming community? Uh, no. Um, if so, that's something that I've been setting up for myself and be willing to do for or with you so you wouldn't have to take on what will essentially wind up being just as much work doing your political commentary if you want to know more about how to get going in that arena, I'd be happy to discuss it with you via email or phone or whatever, because it's a lot. Well, I'm sorry about the flip answer there. Um, uh, needless to say, I need to be involved with the gaming community, and I spent a significant amount of time in uh, about two years, I want to say maybe a little less, um, playing an awful lot of Star Citizen. And um, I eventually just uninstalled that. Uh, 
because I wouldn't get anything done. But I needed it. I really needed it. I needed it. It was a, a huge mental vacation for me. But look, video games eat time. And, and to me, it's kind of like having Reese's peanut butter cups around the house. You know, it's like if they're sitting there on the table, I'm going to eat them. So the best way to not get fat for me is to not buy the stuff. Just walk past it in the supermarket one time and then there you are. Um, so uh, so I like Star Citizen a lot. I haven't, I haven't played it in three years now. Something like that, at least, I would say. Uh, and, um, and I really like the cold water subsim and I liked um, uh, that kind of stuff. They, they, I, I just actually played my first video game for the first time ever two nights ago. I haven't done it in years. And there's a, a pretty good sub-simulator called uh, Cold Waters. And the reason I decided to fire it up again was because they finally allowed you to command a set of a submarine. You could command an Arleigh Burke class uh, destroyer. It was a mod that they added. And I, and I love the Arleigh Burks. I, I've been on one and I just thought, oh, cool. So I gave it a try and then I un uninstalled it again because I worked at it. Um, but look, uh, uh, GK, if I can call you that, uh, G. Um, the, uh, the gaming market is the audience I'm going after. So yes, I don't mean to say I don't want anything to do with it, but in terms of playing video games, uh, I don't think, um, I'm going to be doing that. Uh, she was saying, as she said live, I was thinking you might enjoy commenting on them from a cinematographer and screenwriter's perspective, which would be cool to do. It would be cool to do. Um, some of them obviously like Fortnite, there's, that's just... There's no commentary to be made there. Uh, and, and most of the PvP stuff, player versus player stuff, there's not much commentary to be there. You could, could make commentary about Call of Duty or some of these other things that have a, a storyline, a Halo and all this. But one of the Halos, they remastered it. It was the one with the Covenant. And, and that was a damn good story. And there was one of the, I, th I don't know if it was Call of Duty, can, can boomers play games? And I've been playing computer games before there were monitors. I played... I played a computer game on my high school computer in 1977 with a modem that was a telephone that you plugged into rubber things, and I played a Star Trek game where it said uh, Klingon ship closing to uh, you know, 4,000 kilometers. What are your actions, Captain? Printing it out. One, fire photon torpedoes. Miss. Fire phasers. Hit a number two shield. 16%. Awesome. I had the Apple IIe. I played Flight Simulator 1 where the... The, where the mountains were, I don't know, the whole area was two, three miles wide, and the mountains were a one-dimensional zigzag thing, you know, three little landing strips. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I would get up two hours before work and, and go to work, and I worked in a geochronology lab, and they had a bunch of Apple IIs, and I'd play flight sim for two hours. I'd get up at five or something. Um, but, yeah, I've been there for all of them. Uh, and um, uh, did I ever play the World War One game? I did not. Uh, I did spend some time, uh, there have been periods where I spent a lot of time on, on games. So the two or three games that I actually played a significant amount of time on were uh, Black Hawk Down, which was a first-person shooter. Uh, I played a fair amount of Counter-Strike. Uh, there was a predecessor to Counter-Strike that had all these cool skins where you could get dressed up like the, you know, the Reservoir Dog guys and stuff. Um, and then... What was the other? Oh, oh! I was actually really good at Mech Warrior Three. Really good at that. 
uh, I had a lot of fun on that. I built out a, uh, what's it called? Novacat, something like that. And I and I put I put these monster monster cannons on this thing, and almost no armor at all. And and this was this this particular mech was if I hit you you're going down. It, it might kill you on the first shot, but it, whatever you are in you're going to the ground. And before you can get back up again, I'll hit you again and kill you. And it was just like people were just having a cow. It's like, you cheat him, not cheating. Here's the stats. Got to hit him fast, though. You got to hit him far because he didn't take a lot of damage. But I remember having so much fun with it. I actually entered a, a, a I was in a member, it was the first and only time I've ever been in a, a clan. And that was fun. That really was a lot of fun. Um, okay. Uh, so anyway, yes, yeah, so uh, absolutely, GK. I, I definitely want to get involved with it, and I'm going to have to parse my time there. But nevertheless, uh, you know, there you go. Um, Brandon uh, Jungert, new Fortnite. Always glad to see new Fortnites. Uh, Brandon. Curious to know, Brandon. Honestly, uh, does does it, does the Let's Go Brandon thing bother you? I think it would probably bother me if I was a left winger. If I was a right winger named Brandon, I would be over the moon happy. I just think it'd be the coolest thing. Um, masks, lockdowns, social distancing. What effect do these have on our ability to communicate and, as a result, our perception of reality? Excellent question. Um, uh, Brandon, uh, the data is getting stronger every day. Here in California, I still see it's I have to admit it's getting smaller, but I still see people wearing masks in California inside quite a bit. I still see people. I saw a guy. I saw a guy riding an electric scooter yesterday outside in the scooter in the air with a mask on. I thought, well, what a great liberal he must be. Um, uh, well, that sounds like fun. Um, uh, send me a link for that, would you, uh, GK? Uh, I know you've sent me emails and stuff. I haven't looked at anything. I've just been, I've been, I've been looking at this. Here, here's the thing, though, Brandon. Um, I saw, I see things that break my heart. I, I, when I when I drive to work every day, I go right past an elementary school. Uh, and when I'm not sitting in the parking lot for hours just looking at the kids, uh, um, I, and I drive past them and. And I see them out, and they're running around the perimeter of the school. And now, one out of eight of them is wearing a mask. They don't have to. The first signs of there being real trouble was when was when it appeared that that, that kids, when the first schools were opening up and, and and in person, and getting rid of the masks, there were reports from teachers saying a lot of students didn't want to take them off, that they felt. They felt comfortable behind the mask. They felt safe behind the mask. And being a you know, being a kid is tough. Being a teenager is tough. And many times I had bad skin when I was a teenager. I would love to have had a mask on, but honestly, when you hear the and when you see kids running and they're not taking their masks off, and virtually everybody else when they when they don't have to, I see that. And I just said this is bad, 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 bad. Now. As the data continues to come in, we find that they they're having all kinds of behavioral problems. Some I saw I saw a comment here on the Stress Free Lunch a couple shows ago that said that they're, they they appear to be showing like a like a um, like a 10, 10 to fifteen IQ point drop, and I'm not surprised. 
You know, our brains and our hands and our eyes, all these things are in a constant feedback loop. And that's why if you don't stimulate kids, if you don't play with kids from age of, you know, but by, by the time they're four, they're done. You've got you've to get those, those neural pathways going. And, um, and so the ability, to, the ability to read expressions, the ability to make friends, all of this stuff is happening, especially with younger kids. And they are, they are that gen we're, look, we're going to be paying the cost of this ridiculous so-called scientific advice for the lifespan of these kids. They are going to be a damaged, they're going to be a damaged cohort, depending on how old they were when it happened. Older kids deal with it better than younger ones. But at a certain critical age to go two years without being able to see other people's faces and to go at least a year, in some cases two years, without going to school, enormous behavioral problems. And they're not going to go away. They're, they're, they're wired into them now. And when I see kids wearing masks when they don't have to, it makes me want to cry. When I see adults wearing masks when they don't have to, it makes me laugh. But with kids, it's like, wow. <laughs> the big house says, now I only wear masks when I, when I rob banks. Yeah, I remember first time that happened uh, to me sitting in a parking lot outside of um 7-eleven and I, and I put the mask on i remember thinking I, something feels wrong about this by the way i missed a first time chat from um mark marky mint it said 4 a.m will biddle i don't know if that means it's 4 a.m where you are now or whether i'm expected to go to 4 a.m either one of those is perfectly reasonable um but uh certainly good to to see you there marky um, so, you know, Brandon, it's, it's, it's bad and, and, and it's going to get worse and, and, and it's child abuse and, and everybody knew, actual scientists knew that this was just virtue signaling and, and the very best, the very, very best face you can put on this is the reason they did it was to make people feel as if there was something they could do. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. In um, during the Blitz in London, when the Germans started bombing, and all the and all the Londoners go down into the tube into the subway, they're sitting there and <laughs> bombs going off and stuff. And uh, Churchill brings in all these anti-aircraft guns, and the second the German bombers start coming over, you hear <laughs> we're shooting back. Morale skyrocketed. They didn't shoot down anything. I mean, I don't think they got ten bombers the entire war at nighttime, but it was the sound of the it was the sound of them that gave the people, the sound of the British anti-aircraft guns that gave the British people a sense of, all right, we're fighting back, we're doing something. You could make the case that that's why they said you need to wear masks so that you know, people could feel like they're doing something, but in terms of actual effect, we knew pretty early that this was... Everything about COVID, everything that we did caused more harm than good. It's just like the depression. Everything, every single thing we did caused more harm than good. Uh, Marisha says, uh, made the point the other week to Brett Weinstein that masks can be used for other things from cold weather to allergies to dust particles. Yeah, but that's what we have mucous membranes for. The more you isolate yourself from allergies, from allergens, the more likely you are to have an allergic reaction. This is this is clear, and this is one of the first scientific things I remember learning as an adult. Was I was I saw the statistics, and it basically said that the, the number of allergies is just skyrocketing, and it's almost exclusively skyrocketing from people who are in urban environments, who who, who live in New York high rises, and 
and mom uh, or, the, or the maid or whoever the case may be disinfects everything. We're going to disinfect this. We're going to disinfect that. We're going to use, a, we're going to use disinfectant uh, to clean this thing off. We must disinfect this. We'll wash our hands with alcohol. All you're doing is telling, is, is giving your immune system the, the, the permission to sleep till four in the afternoon and it gets weaker and weaker and weaker. If you want your kids to be healthy, put them out in the dirt. If you want them to be really healthy, put them out in the dirt, let them cut themselves. I'm, I'm not saying cut themselves intentionally. You have a kid who goes outside, scrapes his knee in, in mud, that kid's gonna be fine. You know who don't get allergies ever? Are farm kids, ever. Because there's enough genuine dirt in their lives so that their body knows the difference between an allergen and a, and a pathogen. Um, and uh, she says it's true to a point, but you can be overloaded. I'm not aware of anybody ever in my cohort. And we played in the mud and the dirt and we got banged up and scabs on our knees all the times. I'm not aware of any of us that ever developed any kind of an infection. Ever. I cannot remember having an infection. And I, I, when I say I got cut, I got cut all the time. That's what happens when you go play outside, you know. You fall down, you fall off your bike, you skin your knee, you skin this, you bang your toe, whatever. Step on a nail, that's not fun. But I, am, I don't believe I have ever had an infection. In fact, I'm not aware that I've ever had an infection at all. I've had internal infections, but I've never had a cut that got infected. Uh, Beef Fire says, I grew up on a farm. Only allergy to have is to penicillin. Okay, but it's not the peanuts, right? I mean, it's just, it's allergies and autism. <sighs> 300% increases more in the last 10, 20 years. Something going on. And I think I got an answer on both of those things. Fiery Waco says, I hated the tetanus shot worse than stepping on a nail. Yeah, that hurt. I mentioned this a couple episodes ago. And a couple, it rang a bell for a couple people. If you didn't hear it last time, I'll get it to you real quick. My mom, I'm not sure about my dad. I know for a certain fact my mom, her entire life had two scars the size of dimes on her arm here and they were the result of inoculations and I don't remember what they were for but people at a certain age cohort my mom's age you used to see them all the time out on the beach I'd see I'd see people that were my mom's age she was born in 30 uh, and my dad was born in 25 and was it smallpox yeah thanks these injections created a pretty significant um, uh, scarring there. And you look at this, and I suppose on some level it bothered people, you know, women especially don't like being having scars on them, but I think every time I ever asked about it, they always said, uh, I'd rather have this than polio. Well, now we're finding out who has them and who doesn't. Uh, some of them have them, and some of them uh, say, my mom had that, my dad had that. Um, anyway, uh, fun with, uh, inoculations. Here's a, here's, wow, here's a, wow. Great. There's Henry Lumley. Hey, Bill, you got some cool merch. I'm loving my new sweater. It says fully stacked. It's a picture of the, uh, Starship and the, and Mechazilla. This is from Marcus House on YouTube. I really recommend this channel for SpaceX news. He puts out a weekly summary on Saturdays. He's just the best for keeping up to date. And then here's a linked to something called first to fly the boosters test success so apparently they're getting ready to 
launch that thing. And Henry, I'm assuming that's you in the picture, and I have to tell you, if it is you, you are half the age of what I thought you were. I thought you were uh, a, a kindly old gentleman who had nothing else to do but feed pigeons and 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 uh, and, um, and moderate the comments section. And you, sir, you are a steely-eyed missile man. You look a bit like um, what's his name? Um, the brain's not not in top gear today. Who's the host of Smarter Every Day? Oh, 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 um, it's on the tip of my tongue. Dustin, I think. Anyway, that's not a bad, that's not a bad look. Dustin, Devin, Dustin, 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 whatever. Yeah, you look, you, it's a good look, man. And and thank you for including the link. It's a great shirt, and I'm, and I'm glad to finally see your face. And once again, we are very, very, very grateful. Uh, and, and he's amazing, by the way. He's an amazing guy. Um, here's JR again. Uh, oh, it's a comment about the sweater. Okay, here's one from Marusha. Now, let me just see how many we got here. We will definitely do that one. We don't have a page two. That's a good sign. Uh, all right. Uh, topic, the technocrats and their motives. Bill, in your most recent firewall, you asked what the technocrats' motives are. Was wondering what you thought of Agent K's monologue from the original Men in Black, wherein he explains the reason for secrecy as humans, for the most part, don't have a clue. They don't want or need one. A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, and dangerous animals. And you know it. 1,500 years ago, everyone was so sure the Earth was flat. Uh, unquote. I'm sure you know that scene. I'll finish the question before I deal with that because I want to deal with that quote. The reason I ask is because I believe this to be their motivation. The technocrats see humans as, by default, brutish, stupid, savage children and animals in a lawless, chaotic environment. Absolutely correct. And guess what? That makes them, if people are brutish, stupid, savage, that means that they are gentle, brilliant, kind. And if we live in a lawless, chaotic environment, then they are also ordered and disciplined. You see how it works? The stupider they think that the, the common people are, the better it makes them feel. Miserable, low-life swine. Uh, reason I ask is because I believe this to be their motivation. The technocrats see humans as, by default, brutish, stupid, savage children and animals in a lawless, chaotic environment. That is, it's lords of the flies until we prove otherwise. And they see themselves as the guardians and stewards of the earth, called by higher powers than man, be that God, aliens, or something else, the truth of which is only revealed to the initiated, not unlike the way you slow roll teaching children about adult topics. When I studied law, we were taught that their worldview included the idea that we humans are but renters of our bodies, the earth, and all things in it, the true owner being God, and that humanity is engaged in a celestial and spiritual war that we mere children aren't ready to know about. I'm sure that initially sounds crazy, but it's really not. It's dissimilar from the things I've heard Zoe and Alex Jones often speak about an occult spiritual war wherein the powers that be demand blood sacrifice just that the elites came to an authoritarian conclusion rather than a libertarian one on what the final solution is. To a large extent, I'm going to argue they're right about us given how we generally behave. I'm sure you'll counter with the familiar ox story, but I think it's important to give the devil his due also while bearing in mind the fatal flaw in their worldview which separates us from them. Okay, let's go back to the quote because I agree this quote does represent the elitist worldview from uh so this is the latest writer speaking through agent k and uh in uh, the first men in black movie which was a really great movie 
Humans, for the most part, don't have a clue. About what? The humans that don't have a clue. Don't have a clue about what? Certainly, the humans that are out there, the clueless humans, they know more about milking cows than you do. They know more about changing the oil on a car than you do. They know more about how to mount drywall than you do. They know more about just about everything than you do. They don't know as much as you do about the things that you know. And you've convinced yourself that the things that you know are the important things and that the people who don't know the things that you know, therefore, are idiots. Most people don't have a clue about what? About what? I think the common person has a far better, forget the whole ox thing, which, it, which alone is enough to kill this argument, but, but, but put that aside. There's no question in my mind that a guy who runs a gas station has a far better idea of, of international relations than somebody who comes from Harvard School of uh, whatever it is, political science. No question. This all comes down to the thing I've talked about many times where you saw, you still see it. Leftists will, will, will show a picture of Einstein and a quote of Einstein that says, you cannot simultaneously prepare for uh, war and have peace, something like that, right? Whatever. And it's Albert Einstein, smartest guy who ever lived. Probably is the smartest guy who ever lived in terms of astrophysics. What does Einstein know about politics? What does Einstein know about grooming? What does Einstein know about music? What does Einstein know about farming? What does Einstein know about anything other than astrophysics? Nothing. He knows nothing. He is far stupider about how people behave than just about anybody else on the planet. Just about anybody else on the planet has a better idea of how people behave than Albert Einstein does. And they wanted to make him the president of Israel. There would be no Israel if Albert Einstein was the president of Israel. Because Albert Einstein would assume that people behave like particles and they don't they don't so so the entire premise is flawed and it's flawed for the same prideful reasons that the rest of their virtue signaling is done it's it's a worldview that makes them feel like they're better than other people this is very important to them very it's not only very important it's their entire life this is what this is what they live and breathe they, they don't have a life unless they're better than other people so what else have we got they don't want or need one this idea that people like being stupid, that we don't want to know what's going on, is again, not, it's not borne out by the evidence, right? It's what, it's what people like this tell themselves in order to justify their desire to rule other people. It's, it's, yeah, G.K. Masters, speaking of Einstein and cutting your hair, G.K. Masters says, I was rocking my Malibu Einstein look a week or two ago, though. I was. There are times when this hair just simply, it just is, it's got a mind, it's, it, and, there's, and I've learned over time that I can either get myself all cranked up trying to get it under control, but it wins every time. So every now and then, if you see the Malibu Einstein look, I don't know what to tell you. I just, just roll with it. That's what I do. <laughs> now, Marky Mint is on the money here. He's absolutely got it right. On Reddit, everyone is a genius. Reddit is a perfect example of this. Everybody's a genius, right? And I see it all the time. And I see it especially when they try to bring in, uh, what did I see it on? Um, uh, I got deep into People's Temple and uh, and Jim Jones. And I saw a bunch of posts on Reddit. It was like, somebody said that 
they were a member of the People's Temple, and they said the only person they've ever seen that was like Jim Jones was Donald Trump. Do you think that Donald Trump supporters uh, behave the same way that, that People's Temple supporters do? Absolutely. It's exactly the same thing. Okay, idiot. Okay, idiot. Okay. You don't get to say what Trump supporters are until you hang out with them. Right? And if you did, you'd be in for surprise. Zoe, last week's, uh, Zoe brought an episode called Elon Musk, which I named Elon Musk, uh, Elon Goes to Hell. And uh, the one that we shot today is called Elon Goes to Heaven. Because uh, Elon Musk said he voted Democrat his whole life and now he's going to vote Republican. And Zoe kind of had this, well, that's great, but, you know, there's a lot more to do. And I said, look, man, let's not, let's not stand outside the church here with our hands on our hips. And the first thing we say to somebody is, what took you so long, you freaking idiot? Should have known this a long time ago. The guy's coming around. Zoe got his politics before he got his spirituality. So did I. And, and so will he. Um, and, uh, and, and I said he's different than these people. And the reason I know Elon Musk is different than these people, I'm not saying he doesn't have those tendencies, and I'm not saying he's not under pressure that, but he, he's different. And the reason I know he's different is because Elon Musk has a sense of humor, and Bill Gates and Zuckerberg and Bezos have no, no shred of a sense of humor. There's not a hint of a sense of humor. There's no, there's no indication they have any emotional reaction to anything. They're reptiles. But Musk has a sense of humor. The Starman and, and, and uh, David Bowie and Don't Panic is a sense of humor. That means he's got some kind of a human connection that other billionaires, as a general rule, don't have. So anyway, um, to say that people don't have a clue and they don't want or need one is to say, well, let's take it one by one. People don't want to have a clue. You're telling me that if you're telling me that you actually think that if there's a that if there's an asteroid coming to hit the Earth or or a volcano's about to explode or a hurricane's coming in, you're telling me that you think that average people would rather not know about that, that they'd rather just die and and, and get it over with. Is that what you actually think? Because you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong, 100%. And to say they don't need one is to say they don't need a clue because I'll provide the clues for them. All of this is just one giant circle jerk of just constant triangulation on back on themselves justification for me to tell you what to do me to tell you what to do you don't know anything really i know a hundred things more than you do and i probably know two or three two three two or three things as well as anybody in the world but no they they, they don't they don't want to see it it's it's just it's so it's not just elite not just elitist it's stupid intellectualism is intelligence that's been left in the back of the fridge for six months it's that simple intellectuals are stupid people who are terrified of being seen as stupid people and do everything they can to clothe themselves with what they think intelligent people look like. It's like a cargo cult. People don't want a clue. A person is smart, people are dumb. How does that work? I mean, think about it. You, you, you quote this thing. I'm not blaming you for quoting it. I think it's a, it's a great quote. But, but to say a person is smart, people are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. I don't know it. I know I've seen panic people. I've seen people panic. I've seen people do astonishingly stupid things. But it depends on the people. I recall a story about an, uh, an ocean liner that went down. And while there were isolated incidents, by and large, 
people stood there and let the people who were most in need get on the lifeboats. And the rest of them just sat there and went down with the ship. I saw, I saw United 93, I saw a half full airplane of ordinary Americans pull it together and, and defeat the A-team that had been training for five years. There's nothing special about it. It wasn't a team, SEAL team on that, on that thing. What people are you talking about? If you treat people like sheep, they'll behave like sheep. If you treat them like individuals and citizens, they'll behave like citizens. It's not so hard. The reason they're so against this idea is because they don't like the idea of citizens. Citizens don't get told what to do. Citizens have their own lives. and They tell other people, this is what I want to do. You do what you want to do as long as it doesn't affect me. If there's something we have to do with in common, let's come to an agreement and we'll find the least disgusting compromise. But, but this is to say people are dumb panicky animals. Well, to the degree that you can show evidence of people behaving as dumb panicky animals, it's probably because you treated them as dumb animals before they panicked. If you treat them like people, they will respond like people. I have never seen, I'm not aware. Let me, look, one of the most, of the most influential things I ever wrote, and it was a long time ago, it was called Tribes. It was right after Hurricane Katrina when people were saying Bush, you know, intentionally let people die in, in the Superdome. There were rumors of cannibalism. There were rumors of people starving in there, you know, after, right after Katrina in New Orleans, right? And, and they were saying exactly this kind of thing. That people were animals and savages and, 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 and murderers and rapists. And I said, my people aren't. Your people may be, but my people aren't. My tribe doesn't behave that way. My tribe doesn't rape people in the Superdome. My tribe doesn't let people starve to death. My tribe doesn't, doesn't do any of those things. My tribe, in a situation like that, starts rationing food, finds doctors, provides care, provides security. My tribe behaves like citizens. And that's why I wrote tribes. So where do you get this? You know, one thing I've noticed, I've noticed that, that the people who are the most against gun ownership, when you, when you get down to brass tacks with them, why are you so opposed to people having a gun? You almost always hear this every time, almost always every time. If you had a gun in the house, what would stop you from getting angry and killing the person you're with, or what would stop you from killing yourself? Not funny. Never occurred to me that I would use a gun to kill somebody or kill myself. Never occurred to me that I would get into an argument that would get me so angry that it would cause me to shoot somebody. So where is this projection coming from? What is it you're really afraid of? What you're really afraid of is you're afraid of your own lack of self-discipline. You're afraid of your own impulsiveness. That's why you're a liberal, right? You're terrified of the fact that you might lose control and use this gun to do harmful things because you're an unstable person. Any other questions I can help you with? Because the gun owners that I know are the most, they're, happy coincidence, the two safest places I have ever felt were on, a, were on a shooting range and at an airport. And the reason is because while both of those can be extremely dangerous activities, I have never been around such professional, careful, disciplined, serious people as I have been in an airplane and on a shooting range. So what kind of people are you talking about? I suspect when you say a person is 
dumb, panicky, and dangerous, you are projecting your own reactions onto this. And you're separating yourself from them saying, I don't want to be part of the panicky, dangerous herd. Therefore, I'll just sit up here in the castle and I'll, and I'll make all the decisions. This bloody spectrum thing is just constantly coming. Oh, I think I know what my is saying. Yes, that's what it's called. Uh, all right, so there you go. Um, and and be you know be as be as afraid as you want to. It's none of my business. I don't care. You know if 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 you want to wear a mask for the rest of your life, that's grand. It's your business. I don't care. But I'm not doing it anymore. And and I don't think the country will do it. And I don't think the world's going to take this again. You know, I, even if it's considerably worse, I don't think we're going to go. I don't think we go through this again. I had this conversation with Natasha, who had a very different uh, opinion about this. Then again, I tend to be a little uh, of an outlier when it comes to this kind of thing. I said, you know, we were lying in bed the other night. And I said, you know, because when we were sick with COVID, we were very sick. We lost Christmas. We lost New Year's. And since our, our wedding anniversary is December 31st, we lost our fifth wedding anniversary. We were sick, real sick. But I said to her, you know, honey, if it, if it turned out that we had to be that sick for two weeks once a year, in order to go on with our lives, it's not a big price to pay. I would do that again tomorrow. I wouldn't enjoy it. I wouldn't go, wow. But if that's what it took, if I had to be, if I had to be that sick for three weeks of a year to live the way I lived the rest of the year, if that was the cost, I'd do it in a heartbeat. I wouldn't even hesitate. I said, let's get it over with. Let's get it over with, right? Because it was miserable, but it wasn't fatal. And I don't have a right to go through life. I don't have a right or an expectation to go through life in perpetual comfort. I have been going through life in perpetual comfort, but that's that's something I'm grateful for. It's not something I expect. So, if that's the price for, 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 for being free and living in a free and prosperous society and being able to go to barbecues and, and, and football games and so on, then that's the price I'll pay. And if it kills me, then it kills me. You know, that's not, I almost said, yeah, well, I mean it. Getting killed is not the end of the world. I know that's going to make no sense to people who are from the other tribe, but most of you understand what I mean by that. Get killed is not the end of the world, because it's not. It's the end of your world. It's not the end of the world. And if you think that being that if you think that dying means it's the end of the world, then you are so self-centered. You are your entire perspective is so built around you that you dying is the end of the world. But it's not. It's the end of your world. It's not the end of the world. And the reason we have such a good life is because other people have known that them dying is not the end of the world. And that's why they go out to places like Iwo Jima and Vietnam and Iraq and Iran and whatever you, uh, Afghanistan, whatever you want to say about those, whatever you want to say about those wars, whether we should have been there or not. The bottom line is we have had people who are ready to go and do that and give up the only life they had so that I can live this life and and. I am on borrowed time as far as I'm concerned. I've always felt that way. I've always felt that, that, that every day I'm alive, I'm alive because of somebody or someone who made a sacrifice to not only keep me alive, but to, but to keep me in air-conditioned, 2,000 calorie a day comfort. You know, I've never been hungry in my life. I thought I was hungry, but I've never, never been hungry. My dad, told, my dad was hungry. Because I remember when I was a little boy, I was five, six years old, my dad said, you get hungry enough, you'll eat shoe leather. I said, come on. Mm -hmm. Yes, you will. 
Yes, you will. Because he went through the depression. And, I, and, when he, and when he gave me that look, I, I believed him, and I still do. I've never, been, I've never been hungry. I've never been cold. I've had hypothermia once because I was stupid enough to sleep in a car while we were skiing up in Boone. But I've never been consistently cold. I have been in tremendous pain, tremendous pain twice in my life. Once when I had an impacted tooth that went directly into this nerve and it lit up the entire side of my body. And the other time when I had a kidney stone, that was agony, absolute blinding white agony. It hurt so bad I couldn't remember what it was like not to hurt and I couldn't imagine what it would like to not hurt again. I've had that happen to me twice and, and both times it lasted for about six hours. A miserable, rotten, horrible six hours. Terrible. And I'd go through them again too if that's what it took. You know? That's what I would do. And, 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 and I'm grateful that I don't have to but I wouldn't resent if somebody told me that was the price, I'd pay it. The fact that I don't have to pay it makes me grateful. I'm not ungrateful and I'm not angry when somebody asked me to pay for something that I should have been paying for anyway. Yeah, Dave Big Booty. Six hours of agony, luxury. Uh, does anyone, um, Marky Mint wants to know just real quick, does anyone know what types of aircraft bill flies are used to fly? I do. Um, I do, I know. Let's get out the old trusty. And I think we'll end with this, and I'm going to have to. John Lee, I'll get, I'll get one more question, just and then, then we'll call it a night, because we're approaching three hours. What kind of airplanes is Bill flown? Well, let's go to Pilot Pro and find out. Uh, turns out Bill has three uh, has 975.7 hours of total aircraft time. He's got 899.4 hours in single-engine land. He's got 71.3 hours in gliders, five hours in a simulator. 364 hours of cross-country, 77.5 hours of nighttime flying. That's a pretty, that's a pretty decent percentage of night flying. 92.2 uh, in high performance, 118.3 in complex, and so on and so forth. Uh, as far as the aircraft goes, this is fun. I have flown Sky Arrow, Velocity XLRG. I'm not going to do the fingers anymore because I don't have any fingers. Sky Arrow, Velocity XLRG, DA-40, which is a diamond... Uh, diamond star. Uh, a Cozy, which is a side-by-side -side canard. A DV-20, which is the uh, katana. Uh, a PA-21-6, it's a piper. A TB-20, which is a... Uh, it's that French airplane whose name escapes me now, I think. Uh, Long Easy. I've got some time in a starship. I've flown a P-281, I've flown a PA-2BR, I've flown a DA-20C, which is actually the, the Eclipse, it's the upgraded engine version of the Katana. I have flown a single engine velocity, and then I've also flown in gliders, I've flown a Grobe 103 Twin Aster, I've flown a Grobe 102, I've flown a DG-505, that's a monster, that's a beautiful machine. I've flown a Schweitzer 233, I've flown a Grove 102. I love that airplane. Uh, I think I've probably flown. Uh, I think I've probably flown. I think it was 22 different aircraft types. Types. It's not bad for a private pilot, actually. Um, name the ones that failed on you. The Velocity failed on me. The Long Easy failed on me, and the Eclipse failed on me. Uh, sorry, the Diamond Star failed on me. Diamond Star. 
I was going to say it was partially my fault, but it actually wasn't. Dim the, the Diamond Star was the first engine failure I had. I was flying in Prescott, Arizona on Christmas Eve. It was overcast and cold. What do I know about carbice? Uh, there's a carb heat lever in in uh, in uh, carbureted piston engine airplanes because the carburetors of Venturi and ice can build up there and if the ice blocks the air then there's no air into the cylinders and without air you don't have any power so you're supposed to turn on this carburetor heater that heats the carburetor using engine exhaust air when you get into potential icing conditions so I was flying in what turned out to be icing conditions although I didn't know it I didn't see any ice there's no sign of any ice but I was climbing out of Prescott on a touch-and-go and the power was down uh, and, and, and I was like, uh, we're losing power fast. It didn't just stop. We were definitely losing power, not making enough power to climb on. We are barely hanging on. And so I reached down, pulled the car peat thing, the first thing I did, and, uh, and in no difference. So I just limped this thing around the pattern. I was prepared to go downhill at Prescott. One of these runways, I think it's a south heading runway, you leave the departure in, and it's downhill. is nothing but these big rocks. And you never, ever want to land downhill because you'll never land. If you're going downhill, you'll never land. You'll just keep going faster and faster and faster. But I had no choice there. And I thought, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. If I don't get this power back, I'm not going to try and turn and stall the airplane. I'm going to go down the hill. I'm going to put the airplane between those two rocks. Those boulders are going to take the wings with them, and that'll slow us down, and the plane will be destroyed, and we'll get out and make a call on our cell phone, and it'll be the insurance company's problem. Because the airplane that doesn't fly anymore is not your friend. So I pulled the carpet. It turned out, that, that I was able to limp it around the pattern and intersect in runways. So once I had enough of a turn, I could make the, the crossing runway. I was holding on. I took, took the runway I took off on, landed the plane, beautiful landing. Nobody in the plane, I had, two, had three passengers. Nobody knew anything was wrong until the, we were on the, on the runway, and then we can't move off the runway because the engine stopped running. Once, the propeller, once we stopped moving, the propeller stopped turning. Push it off. Uh, and they said... Uh, I said, did you know anything was wrong? He said, no, not really. I said, you got kind of quiet. I had things on my mind. Anyway, so we pulled the engine uh, cowling off. And what happened was when I pulled the carb heat thing, the lever on the bottom of the, uh, of the Diamond Star uh, is attached to a cable. The cable runs to, um, to a, uh, a rotating valve like this. So when you pull the cable, it, it turns the valve and opens up uh, the hot air to heat the car. Well, I pulled the thing and the cable stripped because this thing was frozen. I don't mean cold frozen, it was mechanically frozen. It wasn't lubricated. It just wasn't lubricated. So. Uh, so I don't know whether that was my fault for not putting on it earlier, but I guess it's not because even if I had, it, was, it wasn't, it was frozen, it was broken. Um, I'm going to do one more question, and uh, then I'm going to then I'm going to go. I didn't get them all. How many did I miss? One, two, three, four, five. I was thinking I might do it, but I feel obligated to. But man, I'm I'm starting to feel it. I'm I'm sorry. I'm just going to do one, and and please post them again, Chris and uh, and William Salisbury and uh, Lynn uh, and uh, Steve. Young, if you could post them at the top next time, uh, I will make an effort to do this first. And, and please, if you've asked it a bunch of times, uh, put I've asked a third time asking. Don't be nasty about it, because otherwise I'll, I'll I'll be hurt and, and, and very sad. 
But if you could say, hey, I've, I've tried to get this question out three times, I usually, the second I see that, I'll do this first. So I'm just going to do one more, which belongs to... Um, Jamal. Uh, greetings, Bill, and praise Vectron. Hail, hail Vectron and, and his golden claw. In a previous episode of the Stratosphere Lounge, you say you no longer play Star Citizen due to development not going anywhere for some time. Have you played Elite Dangerous? I have not. It's also a self a space sim. I'm very familiar with it. Uh, with a lot of the same features, such as full-scale planets and planetary landings, from what I've seen, the developers seem to be adding new content regularly. I hear the flight mechanics in Elite Dangerous are better than Star Citizen, but I can't speak to this myself as I haven't played either of them because my PC's a potato. Um, same argument about uh, putting away the Star Citizen applies uh, to Elite. Uh, it looks great. Uh, I've, and, and the thing I like about Elite is that apparently there are virtually unlimited number of solar systems. You can fly to all of them. They're procedurally generated. There's not a lot there, but nevertheless, there are people reporting planets that they've discovered in Elite, and Elite's been out for a long time. And Elite is starting to get to the point where you can walk around on the planet. It used to be you could just sit in the cockpit of the thing or get in a rover. So they're, they're kind of coming along. Um, yeah, Eric says I should do a flying episode only so I can talk about other things you write about there. Uh, but, um, and, and there's a lot, I played the original Elite on the, Apple IIe, and that game was fantastic. I loved that game. Loved it. Um, but I do, it's just probably time for me to mention this about the Star Citizen and the development. Look, there's a, there's, Star Citizen is, is fascinating because it's really, really fascinating. There's no question that, that Cloud Imperium Games and Chris Roberts has been aware that the promises that he's been making for it's been 10 years in development now that 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 these things are not going to happen star citizen has been saying things like we will have squadron 42 out by next year and they've been saying that for six years seven years now uh, they need a technology called server meshing which may never work but they keep saying it's right around the corner i will re i i put it down because it was taking too much of my time but one of the reasons i put it down because I was very much into this. I went to CitizenCon, I want to say, two, was it 2019 or 2018? I think it was 2018 in Texas. And all of the stuff was coming this year. This Next year we're going to see a new solar system, we're going to see the pyro system, we're going to see this, we're going to see this, 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 and this. And they had their, and they had their um, timeline, they had their, their expected progress. Thing. And what I, what I learned over the next six, seven months was they kept taking things off of the um, roadmap and the things they would take off were big and the things they would replace them with were very very small and very very easy for instance one of the things was they were going to do like um, salvage that's great we take salvage off but we are putting in prison systems that's just a level right I mean it's just a level yeah it's a level seems pretty easy to me Mm -hmm. We're gonna we're gonna keep adding all the stuff, and then and 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 as time went on, and I I'll stick to my guns on this. The more money and the more time they have, the slower they go. Eventually, they'll have all the money in the world, and they will completely stop. So a lot of people out there think Star Citizen is a scam, and that it will never be delivered, and and and, and they may be right. On the other hand, some people think, and I'm one of them, 
I got plenty of enjoyment out of this incomplete game that probably will never be anything like what they said it will be. I, I had a lot of fun. I drove around alien planets with friends of mine and got out and walked around and drove rovers and that was that was a that was a blast. But the promises that were made, you could say were made in good faith and and, and look, I'm a champion of this, right? Myself. I always, always, always underestimate how much time and effort things are gonna take. But but there comes a point where, you know, you've got four hundred million dollars in ten years and and you're doing less and less and less and less and less. Uh, and Chris Roberts disappears for almost two years. You know. Now, there's something really rotten there. And, and I'll close with this because it's important. Um, we're about to release this animation. We're going to push hard for members and one-time donations so that we can finish this animation. And with the finished animation, we will then take this and then we'll go out for serious money. And my hope and goal is to do a really excellent science fiction series crowdfunded. But I have learned an awful lot of lessons from Star Citizen, from watching Star Citizen for five years now. And, and this is important. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is the more money you have and the more time you have, the more money you will spend and time you will spend. And that's the lesson of Star Citizen. Yes, Collins. The more money you have, the more money you will spend. The more time that the people give you, the more time you will take. And that's not a surprise given human nature. You would think, and Star Citizen basically said, look, the more money we have, the faster we'll go. It's the same for me uh, with my radar too, uh, CP Tomes. They came out and said it. Robert said it a bunch of times. The thing about us getting more money is, that's great, we'll finish earlier. We can put more people on the job. That seems to make sense. It doesn't work that way. Human, human nature is not that way. So when it comes time to do a, a, a crowdfunding for the colonies, I am going to ask for as much money as we need. And once we get to that number, I will not take any more. Now, that is going to require crazy discipline, crazy discipline. Look, Star Citizen originally asked for, what was it, 600000 or, or or less even? And the next thing you know, he's got, like, maybe it was even 300000 I don't know. But all of a sudden, they've got five times what they were asking for, and it just kept coming, and they just kept taking it. And so they kept adding stretch goals. To be fair to Chris and, 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 uh, and CIG, we say, if we get to this point, we're going to add this. Do you want us to add this? People said yes. How many of the people? Who knows? But okay. We'll get more money, and then we'll deliver more stuff. But it didn't happen. The thing still doesn't, the flight dynamics still don't work. People still disappear into walls. You should have gotten that fixed first. You know, you should have gotten the fundamentals first. And he didn't do it. He built that cathedral from the top down. And, and there's no question about that. You know, you, if, you, if you can get the fundamental flight dynamics working, just do that first, then... People can go have fun with that, and then you can add stuff, and then they'll have fun with new stuff, but it just didn't, didn't happen that way. And there's an argument to be made that given the amount of money they charge for these ships, there's an argument to be made that it's, it, it is in Star Citizen's economic interest to never finish the game. As long as people, they, they, make, they raise more money every year. And so if you, if you continue to make more and more money and deliver less and less and less, what are you being incentivized for? So look, again, I want to be fair. For me, the charm of Star Citizen was I wanted to be a spaceship pilot. 
and Star Citizen has given me the opportunity to do that in spades. Any number of ships, big ones, small ones, fly them around, land them wherever I want to. So I got my money's worth out of Star Citizen. Absolutely did. But the dream of it was form these organizations, we'll set up our colonies, we'll defend our colonies, we'll have guys flying combat air patrols, we'll work with other teams. They're limited to five, 50 players, and they're not, and that's not going to improve. They're, they're, they picked the best-looking game engine for 2013. They picked CryEngine. CryEngine is not designed for this, and, it's, and, and, and they get more, and tech debt gets better. Tech, tech debt builds up and builds up and builds up, and that's why it's slowing down. They've got, they've got They've got cholesterol in their arteries, and it's obvious. And the only and and the only hope for them, and some people think this might be going on in the background. I don't know. But really, I think the only chance they have is to, is to, hopefully they're working on this and have been for a while, is to get onto Unreal Five fast, or use Unreal Five as the kernel of their own game engine, because the the real threat to Star Citizen is not that it won't be finished. The threat to Star Citizen was. They started in 2012, and in 2015-16, they were putting out all of these demos and, and cinematics, and they look great. Well, they don't look so great anymore because it's not 2015 anymore. And if this game comes out in 2023-24 and looks like it came out in 2015 or 16, then they're toast. Right? I'm, I'm looking at Unreal 5, and I'm just, oh. Star Citizen... Even even when I started playing in 2017, it's five years ago. In 2017, it looked great. It's improved marginally, but it no longer looks great. It doesn't look great anymore because everything else has, has moved so fast. You cannot be in this business where technology draws is moving so fast and spend 10 years. You just can't do it because by the time you get this product out the door, it's obsolete. Yeah, uh, Aviante 68, that's a name I don't see enough. Good to see it. Unreal 5 is a game changer. It is a game changer, and not just because of the rendering quality. For the life of me, for the life of me, I was jaw on the ground, and I remain jaw on the ground. I do not know how they do this, and worse than that, I cannot imagine how they do it. I've seen many times I've seen an app that blew my mind, and I thought, wow. I hold it up, and it tells me what that airplane is. Wow. But I can say, okay, well, let me think this through. It, there's a radar system, so the, so the radar system knows where that plane is, the phone knows where it is, and the phone knows the angle, so, the so I can figure out how the app works, but I can't figure out how they do this. But Unreal 5 will allow you to import as much detail as you want to, and you never have to deal with these levels, the LOD argument. In computer games, the way they've been able to deal with, with the fact that there's only limited memory and limiting processing speed is, the further away from something is, the less detailed it is, because it doesn't have to be. It's only so many pixels there, right? You, you, could have a, you could have eyebrows on a guy who's a mile away. You'll never see them, so why go to the trouble of rendering them? So there are levels of detail, and as the thing gets closer and closer, it reses up. Ideally, it reses up smoothly, but it almost never happens. You can usually see it. But Unreal 5 allows you to load billions, billions, of vertices and it just does it with nanite i don't know how i don't i do not how they do it. i have a vague idea how they did lumen which is their lighting system and even that is astonishing to me it's just plain magic and it's spectacular um so um uh 
let me just deal with Justin's question here because it's it's great. Anyway, look, I wish Star Citizen the very best, and uh, and and I, I can't say it often enough. I think I think I think it was lied to. I think people are continually lied to. I don't think it's going to be what they said it was going to be ever, and I think they've known that for a long time. With that said, I had a lot of fun, and I got my money's worth and more. Um, okay, I'm, I'm just going to deal with this one because it's 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 uh, nice, and then I'm, then I'm going to go to bed. Uh, reading, sorry, uh, this is from Justin Witsit. Bill, I wasn't able to watch last week's Stratus Relaunch, so belated congratulations is in order to you and your wife on her becoming an American sister. Thank you very much, and again to all of you. I heard you mention that it was getting hard to send money to her family. It's impossible, that's right. Have you thought about using crypto to send money to them? I had not. It would get rather involved and you would have to make sure her family knew what they were doing, but neither government would be able to stop it unless they turned the internet off. That is a fabulous idea. That's a fantastic idea. Um, I know nothing about crypto other than I know what it is. Uh, I haven't dealt with it at all, but this is not a terribly complex transaction. I could do the research on this in probably half an hour uh, and figure out how to do it. That's a profoundly good idea, Justin. I will look into that. Thank you. That's really, I don't know why that never occurred to me, but that's the whole purpose of crypto, right? You, if you've got an internet, you can you can do it. I, I suspect that, the, that if there is a problem with it, the problem will be cashing out the crypto for rubles, and certainly I don't think they'd be able to get dollars. But there must be some people that could do it. <laughs> Dave Big Booty says, Stratacoin. Yeah, let me tell you about my new idea for an NFT. I'm going to be starting my own cryptocurrency and my own non-fungible... Non and... Um, and I expect to be a multi-billionaire out of it. I've, I've done a, a sketch on something using MS Paint, and it's completely unique, and it's going to be digitally locked, and I'm asking $600 million for it, and, and I'll go down to $300 million, you know, the market. <sighs> Mark Mint says, I make adventure games and don't have a dialogue system. Good for you. We have Martian Dark says, we'll call it Billcoin. That's got a nice ring to it. Stratacoin. I lived through the tech, the dot-com bubble. I had started working at a company called is.com. It was one of the tech startups. It was online uh, fulfillment. And, and they got a very clever idea. Let's make a TV show. And the TV show will feature all of our products. And then we'll do really cool segments and we'll buy time at, you know, infomercial time. You may remember that if you're old enough. Um, we will do a TV show show all the cool stuff we're doing. We'll run it late at night, but people are still up. That'll drive them to the website, the bus, they'll buy stuff. Well, they put a lot of money into it, millions into it. And I worked on the TV show. And the guy who was the internet genius behind this, big name, big name, said, uh, I was working as a production manager, a post-production supervisor, and I was the last guy out of the building, and he's the guy's the owner of this thing, comes by at like 11.30 at night. He says, oh, you're still here? I said, yeah, just wrapping up some stuff late. He says, Bill, I wanna ask you a question. I said, sure. Said, I said, I'm having a problem. I don't know how to figure this out. Okay. Um, we wanted in our first month open, we wanted the TV show to drive 20,000 views to the website in the first month. It's driven 250,000 views. So you're more than 10 times better than what we were doing. That's fantastic, man. I'm on TV and that's great. 
said, so we wanted to get 20,000 views and we were hoping for uh, 4,000 in sales or 8,000 8, individual transactions, something like that, or 10,000. I said, okay. And he said, we, what have you got? And he said, well, we got eight. I said, said 8,000 is not bad. He said, no, we didn't get 8,000. We got eight. We had eight transactions on 250,000 views. Any idea why? <laughs> he's a, he's a dot com genius. He's he's one of these guys that was just just huge name. Well, to be honest with you, Lee, I think I could think of two things. First of all, you know we're selling clothes. One of the things we sell is clothes, right? People don't get to try clothes on online. People want to try clothes on. Now, if we were selling packages, if we were selling, if we were selling like combos that we were selling the, you know, the, the, the fashion, that might be better, but we're not doing that. We're just selling individual clothing items and they can try them on at the mall and do that. And the second thing we're selling is electronics and, and, and the electronics cost slightly more than they do at Best Buy. And they don't get to try those out either. And he looked at me and I could just see like somebody lit a candle in a dark room. Like that never occurred to me. And I'm thinking, you're the internet genius. You're the you're the guy that put millions of dollars into this thing. It never occurred to you. Nope. Which is all the evidence you need, folks. I'm not trying to single them out. All the evidence you need to know that ain't nobody knows nothing and ain't nobody in charge pulling the levers. There are people trying to. But the higher I got up in show business, I kept seeing, uh, now's my chance to go behind the curtain and see how the things are. Get behind the curtain, and you you know who's running the machine? Nobody. There's nobody running the machine. Nobody. Ain't, nobody knows nothing. So, anyway. Uh, did I watch Apollo 13? Yes. Yeah, yes, I did. I saw it a long time ago. Uh, proud to say. There's two name drops in one episode, which is well above the average, and I'm sorry to, to do it. Uh, but I'm, I'm close friends, I would say, with Gary Sinise and just, a, just one of the best guys in the world. Uh, do I have? I'm just going to prove these things every now and then to myself mostly. Uh, put on my reading spectacles. Yeah. Here we are. He's my favorite actor, and uh, and he is he is not just he's not just a great actor, he's one of the he's one of the best Americans that there, that has ever lived. Gary Sinise has spent more time and money for our troops than anybody I know, and and most importantly, he's done it under the radar. And and Gary Sinise has been to Iraq and, and Afghanistan more times than I can count. But the, but the thing that most impresses me about Gary Sinise is He's been to places like Fort Knox and Macon and uh, Keesler, all of these Air Force bases at home and, and military bases at home. He, he's not just in it for the glamour. He's not just in it so he can say he's combat guy. You know, he just plain does it. And uh, and I am uh, I'm just so proud of him. Gary Sinise, the picture was taken because uh, he's imagined my shock. 
He's moving the Gary Sinise Foundation, which is a gigantic or organization now. He's moving it from Los Angeles to uh, to Nashville. And this was kind of a goodbye party for the for the facility, and you know, we'll see him over there. Um, but the amount of good that that meant, I, I don't I, I don't want to insult him by by mangling the number. I want to say that the Gary Sinise Foundation has no you know how many homes they built for veterans in most cases. In most cases, um, handicapped, I think virtually all cases, handicapped veterans. You know how many houses Gary Sinise Foundation's built for veterans? I want to say it's 72. 72 houses, homes. Here's a home for you. You had your legs and arms blown off, sometimes either, sometimes both, in service of our country. Well, we'll, we'll find a way to, can't give you your arms back, but we can give you, or, or your legs back, but we can give you a house where all the fixtures are at a level where, you're, where you can reach them in a wheelchair. And... And, and you see the Gary Sinise Foundation reel, and you see the look on the faces of these people. The thing that I love most about Gary Sinise is he treats soldiers like they're movie stars, and he treats movie stars like they're people. And, and I, I just couldn't be prouder of myself uh, for, for knowing him. Just, I'm, we're not like close friends, but we saw each other in the restaurant gary sneeze would walk over to me and i'd walk over to him uh and um and he's just the he's just a fine man and and, and he's and and gary sneeze is the kind of guy that makes you proud to be on the team you know just proud to be on the same team as him and the fact that they even talk to you is astonishing it's not astonishing to them uh, you guys have listened to me for two oh well, for those of you watching live, because we did do a fair amount of stuff before we recorded this one, live has been for three hours and 25 minutes, recorded has been for two hours and 40 minutes. So the show felt like a three-hour show because it has been, but for those of you watching on, on, uh, on uh, YouTube missed a uh, pretty cool, what was it, almost 50 minutes, something like that. Okay, I'm going. Top Gun Maverick. I'll talk about it next time. Hey, you know what? Um, uh, final note. The show is made possible by the members of BillWhittle.com. You may not know that, but it's true. Um, many of you out there, certainly the questions that we took from uh, BillWhittle.com are, are members and see fit to part with nine ninety five a month or more and uh, every month. And that's why I'm here. And um, we don't have a huge audience, but we got the best audience. We have the best people in the world absolutely the best people in the world um and it's uh it actually even considerably exceeds my uh my pride in, in knowing guys like gary and and adam baldwin and john boyd yeah, just the quality of the people we have here are utterly fantastic um all right i'm gonna i'm gonna uh, post this baby and uh get back to work on the um on the other thing uh, so, yeah, that'll do it. Uh, thanks for joining us. I expect we will see you next Thursday. And by golly, after talking and flapping my jaws about this for years and years and years, I'm going to have something to show people, and I think it's going to knock their socks off. Damn well better. Okay, we'll see you. Um, uh, we'll see you next week right here on your very own Stratosphere Lounge. <laughs>